to Weird Comics History. My name is Reggie. My name is Chris. And we like to bring you some Weird Comics History every week on the WeirdScienceDCComics.com podcast feed. Uh, if you're subscribed to Weird Science DC Comics podcast, we'll show up right away every Sunday morning, right before uh, you know the evening release of the regular podcast. And you can also find us on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, etc. Mm-hmm. Now Every this way you can find us. That's right. I've no. I don't really know any. I, there may be other ways. Google Play. That was another one. I just don't know. <laughs> I don't know enough about it to tell you. But if you're in the podcast world, you probably you know you'll find and, us in there. And if you come to my house, I'll give it to you on cassette. There you go. That's another way we can do it. We got. I got a floppy disk. I, you know, if you got. Uh, so, <laughs> so uh, you know, we've been talking now. This is our fifth week, episode five. It's also part five of our look at the Comics Code Authority. Uh, this is going to finally come to a conclusion here, Chris. Are you are you feeling good? Do you feel like we tackled the big task and succeeded here? I think I think we did a pretty decent service to the code. I think uh, I think we looked at it in a, dare I say fair and balanced way. <laughs> I think I think we did. You know, we didn't didn't do too much shock and awe. Mostly fair no. and balanced, and uh, I think we did. But we'll find out how good it is after this episode's complete. I guess. First, a little recap of what we've been over. Um, we talked about how there was a change in the tenor of comics after World War II, and this really concerned a lot of parents. Uh, you know, they, they got a little more cynical, definitely a lot more gory, uh, more crime, maybe more sexualized. Uh, Dr. Frederick Wortham, he, who was a psychologist, he tied comics to a rise in juvenile delinquency in several articles from the late 40s, published in one in, in a... Uh, Journal, a yeah. academic journal that we found. A psychological that, journal. Yeah, yeah, and a couple in you know Collier's and Ladies Home Journal and stuff like that. And he wrote a book, Seduction of the Innocent, in 1954, which really uh, solidified the, this feeling that comics were a, a direct cause uh, to juvenile delinquency. So uh, Senator Estes Cafavra helmed the subcommittee on juvenile delinquency and held hearings about comic books, specifically horror and crime comics in 1954. And in 1955, the comics industry formed an internal partnership uh, to regulate their own content known as the Comics Code Authority. Uh, they were actually the association of something publishers, right? And they, they Yeah, like the unif- univer- Unified Magazine and Comics Publishers or something like that. Something like that. And this, this yeah. I guess, would have been sort of a subgroup, uh, and they developed a code, uh, a, a code of ethics by which uh, comics would be governed for over 50 years. Um, mm-hmm. And we went through all that last episode. We actually detailed the entire code and all of its, uh, a couple of its revisions over the years and the way it had affected comics. So really, I mean, we're, we're not, this recap is really just a blustering through the, uh, you know, ridiculous amount of things we've already said about yes. it. So uh, like all good things, I guess, quote unquote, all things. good things. <laughs> Uh, the comics code did come to an end, uh, and not exactly ceremoniously. You know, it was kind of losing. You know, we talked a little bit last episode how it was sort of losing its punch, even in the yeah. late '80s, '90s. Uh, Marvel stopped submitting comics completely to the CCA in 2001, uh, with the X Force number 116 in July 2001. That was by Peter Milligan and Mike Allred. This was a radical new take on the X-Force and the, using the team that would eventually become the X-Static. And mm-hmm. they actually made a note of this, right? That uh, there was a... Yeah, this is, a, this is an interesting book because, uh, spoiler alert, uh, the entire team that they start with minus one or two characters gets brutally massacred at the end of it. Mm-hmm. It was... Uh, 
very, very odd take on X-Force. That's where you get, like, the characters like Doop, who's currently... Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and they uh, published this with, uh, instead of a code, there was a little note that said, hey, kids, look, no code. I think they, they were very really, really proud of their, you know. They, they were very proud. And this they were taking a, an official stance now, a company-wide, line-wide stance, you know. and Because uh, initially it seemed as though, because this was like kind of their counterculture book, because, you know, X-Force was. Uh, the young, yeah, right. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, this was like a, the old Liefeld book. This is. Part of their speculator boom. This is one of the things that you know really kicked it into gear. Right. And here they are, like totally taking the piss on it. And uh, you know the 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 main team didn't appear in this book. This is a whole new crew. And Marvel even went as far as to publish negative, like incendiary le- negative uh, letters. Wow, really? About this really? new take, <laughs> and and really just taking the piss out of those too. So this, you know, I, you know, I think at the time we didn't know if this was just like, okay, this is the counterculture book, not really indicative of the entire, you know, publication schedule of Marvel, but uh, it would eventually become just what it was. This was, you know, this was it, the line in the sand. That's no it. They were, they were warranting any more crap, you know. I also yeah. want to point out that 2001, this isn't too far out from when they published the Marvel six-issue series, which will always be remembered as just a, a weird... It was a, it was an odd time for Marvel publishing. That's all I'm going to say. They were obviously making some strange decisions. <laughs> the uh, last issue of that was all all the last issue of that was was the submission guidelines for the new epic. For new epic, yeah, I know. It was like what? What? Are, but even you know, even without that, that was the most sensible issue in the whole series. It might have been that. Yeah. That that could be very well worth uh, discussion someday by itself, but not, not right now. I think now. so, especially with uh, everything else surrounding it as well. So for uh, so for X Force One Sixteen though. There was a, a hashtag, a pound sign, in lieu of the code in the newsstand edition, uh, but it did have a mature content warning on the cover. Yeah, they uh, eventually went to the uh, Marvel rating system, and uh, this is instead of, you know, the comics code here. And it was originally so close to the uh, MPAA, the movie rating system, that the MPAA complained that they were infringing on their trademark. Which is so weird, because, how, you it? know, like, does the, MPAA, does the MPAA generate money by itself? Does, why do they care? It's just like a rating, you know? It's like so weird. I know. It's, it's like, okay, rated R. Uh-oh, you can't say that. Yeah, that's not, that's not good, you know? Oh, no, that's R-R, anyway. Yes. And, uh, you know, they had, uh, you know, they had their all-ages line, which is pretty self-explanatory. Uh, the one that's appropriate for most readers was originally T, and then it went to A. So we have T or A. Hey, <laughs> whichever one you want, guys. Yeah, and that's appropriate for most readers uh, over nine. Uh, T plus is teens, thirteen and up. Uh, parental advisories for older teens and up. And then you have Max, which is the explicit content. This is, uh, you know, this is the explicit line at Marvel. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first book of that, and I didn't get a date for it, but I, I'd have to assume it's somewhere in this uh, neighborhood here. But uh, that was Alias Number One. And the first word to appear is the F word. Is uh oh. <laughs> the very first word. It's like, it, it just, it's. I was probably 20 or 21 when I read this, and, and uh, it's just like, really. Yeah, <laughs> you, you, you definitely didn't find it that cool. Just like great, no. you, you opened it with a curse that I'd never. Could... Yeah, it's it's like wow. maybe if, if I w- if I was because that was eighteen plus. If I was younger than eighteen, I might have thought that was really cool. Of course, yeah. That, that's <laughs> when that's when you were thirteen. You would have been like, awesome. Yeah, yeah this curse is the work. best book ever. But yeah, when, when you're but, old enough to read it, you're old enough to realize that it's really not a big it's deal. Stupid. It just it seems that uh, you know Marvel looked at and, and this is the Jemis run where he pretty much called us based. Basement dwellers, 
So it just seems like they were really catering to like a man-child type of a uh, type of market. This and is it, that it, uh, this is that Jessica Jones book too, right? Now yeah, this is? yeah, yeah. This is, this is the and I think they're they're launching a new version of that uh, coming up pretty quick to wow. maybe tie in with the, the show. Is it Netflix or Hulu or one Netflix, of those. Netflix, yeah, yeah. Um, now DC would stop uh, submitting a decade later in January of 2011, and at this point they'd only submit a few titles, some superhero books and their Johnny DC line. And uh, Just their kids' they, line, right? Yeah, yeah, like uh, like the Scooby Doo right. and the Bugs Bunny stuff. Uh, they went to an internal code, which was E for everybody, T for teen, T plus for teen plus, and M for mature. And the ESRB never uh, never complained about that, and that's yeah. very similar to it's this. Same thing, basically, yeah. from what I can tell. <laughs> Except for teen plus, yeah. That's right. Um, uh, Bongo Comics, which uh, they're, they're the ones who do the Simpsons books, they stopped uh, a year earlier than that in 2010. Really didn't cause any headlines. Um, and they replaced the CCA stamp with uh, a little block of text just says that just said all ages. Yeah, I mean, and, I mean, that's uh, what's so funny is they were always all ages. It's like, yeah. it's it's funny that that they stopped submitting before DC. You know, they, they, yeah, exactly. It's like, <laughs> it's like they, they I, I doubt they ever got a. Oh, who knows? They might have gotten some uh, panel changes over the years. You know, could be. Matt Groening is behind it. He's a little counterculture. Sure. Uh, and then uh, Archie was kind of the final nail in the uh, coffin there. They stopped also in January of 2011. Uh, now, they didn't replace the CCA with an internal rating system. Instead, they promised to, they, they promised to continue to produce family-friendly, entertaining, and relevant stories. Uh, we've got a quote from Archie president uh, Mike Pellerito. He says, We have a great deal of respect for what the Comics Code Authority has stood for over the years. But at the end of the day, the final judge of our content is our readership. And then they killed Archie. And then they killed Archie. <laughs> <laughs> like, hooray! And what's funny is, you know, this the the CCA was the president was Goldwater, the same president yeah. for Archie for years and for a long time. Th- yeah, this sort of was the the bookend, I guess. The closing of it was for Archie to finally bow out. That was there was no more. And they were very, very protective of the way their characters were portrayed, even like in fan art. Yeah, it was it was very, very like stringent. It's like no, those two characters can't kiss. No, those two characters can't hold hands. It's very, very weird. Kevin, um, do you remember when Kevin Keller came in? The uh, their I, gay, gay I remember character? hearing about that. Yeah, I, I never. If that was uh, before or after this, but I can't remember. I can't remember either. It's it's around this time, I'm guessing. Um, now, uh, you know the uh, the uh, what's it? The comics code here is R.I.P. Dead, January 2011, and the rights to the uh, the iconic CCA stamp now re- resides with with lies with the CBLDF, which is the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. Yep, which uh, really, in a way, no better people should have it. You know, to, hmm. whatever you think of them, uh, the comic the, the, for them to be using this. Uh, Icon of comics restriction, I think, is pretty fitting. I wonder uh, how much it was going for. <laughs> I gotta think it wasn't that much, you know. I, I, would I wonder, you know, we didn't bucks. find out. I wonder who designed it, the first person. But uh, I guess it's, oh, yeah. that's something. Maybe we could uh, fill that in. Somebody wants to write write us in with that information. We'll mention sure. you on the air next time. So we'll do a little wrap up, little post Animal House, you know, post credits <laughs> Animal House style style wrap up here on some of our favorite characters from these uh, stories of the code or our old friend. Estes Kefauver, Senator Estes Kefauver, was actually born Carrie Estes, Estes Kefauver, but I guess he thought Estes was a much better sounding name, you know? Yeah, yeah it, ha- it carries a lot of weight. So, yeah, so <laughs> so after the, his uh, turbulent 50s, if you remember, you know, he had a couple of unsuccessful bids for president, he was a vice president, he didn't succeed there, 
uh, you know, he was kind of bopping around. He uh, created the Kefauver Harris Drug Act of 1962, uh, trying to take on big pharma, pharmaceuticals. Um, and this allowed for generic medications, but this wasn't what we think of today, where it's just sort of, you know, no name brand medications. These were uh, subpar medications that were not, yeah, not, not as well not tested. tested. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and this led to the thalidomide baby epidemic. That was a morning. Thalidomide was a morning sickness drug given to women in the 60s that ended up producing children with horrible deformities. This was a uh, massive horrific, problem. Yeah. Horrific. And, and if you look up thalidomide on the internet, you will definitely see some uh, evidences of these. Some very sobering images. Definitely. That you should be careful what you ingest while you are pregnant. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, all you ladies out there that are listening, I'm sure. Uh, anyway, they, he held hearings targeting indecency and pornography with special focus on pinup icon Betty Page, who, uh, you know, she did a lot of uh, photographs in the late 50s, early 60s. He died August 8th, 1963, less than a decade after the hearings. Uh, you know, he was a heavy smoker and drinker as per the time. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, he had a mild heart attack on the Senate floor while working on an antitrust amendment for NASA beneficiaries, which was pretty interesting, detailed stuff. And he yeah. died two days later of a ruptured aortic aneurysm. Uh, his widow, Nancy, was named as the first head of art in embassies program, the AIEP. That was in 1963. Uh, it promoted cultural diplomacy through art exhibitions, and she was actually the last appointment John F. Kennedy made in November mm -hmm. 1963 before he died. Yep, before 11:22. That's right. <laughs> that had had uh, to have been maybe it was funny if it was 11:21 or something, but I don't wouldn't know. Wouldn't it? <laughs> it's like, hey, we're in Dallas, but you got to sign this. Yeah, right? all right, fine, whatever. Like, give Keith <laughs> sure. Farver, give Keith Farver's widow the position. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> uh, let's see here. We're gonna also check in on our old friend Frederick, our old friend uh, Wortham here. Now, of odd interest that we uh, we didn't uh, touch on this when we were discussing his life here, but this is interesting that uh, an interesting tidbit we came across. He he actually debated Alfred Hitchcock on violent film and television. Wow! In 1963, and he he has like the greatest opening line ever. He he comes in and he says, "I never saw Psycho." <laughs> so wow! It's, it's like I don't like your movies, but I never saw one. Yeah, I just right heard away. that. Jeez. Yeah, and I, from all accounts, uh, Hitchcock kind of wiped the floor with him, and uh, it was, uh, you know, Hitchcock, I guess he, he, he's always been known for a little bit of his dry wit, so I think he pretty much just took it and then just let him have it. Yeah, he probably, yeah, exactly, he probably sat passively and then let him He gave him enough the, rope, yeah. You know, <laughs> you, sir, are a buffoon, you know, yeah. something like this. He, he might, he might hate him more than he hates commercials. <laughs> uh, some of his uh, postcode writings here. We have The Circle of Guilt, which was published in 1958. And this is, uh, is Wortham, not Hitchcock. Right. Um, the book, uh, this book claimed that Americans were beginning to feel less responsible for their actions and uh, places some of that blame on comics and movies. But, you know, it's funny. He's the one who's starting. He's building these, these boogeymen up. Yeah. And then he has the nerve to say, well, Americans are feeling less responsible. It's like, but you've kind of taken all the responsibility away from them. Yeah, you, you, you've you you've made the, the comics and movies responsible. So, you know, you're yeah, the, so, so which side are you promoting here? You know, it's, very... yeah, it's like it's like chicken or egg here. It's yeah. like, which one's which? Wow. Um, 
Another book he uh, he had published was a, a Sign for Cain, an Exploration of Human Violence, which came out in 1965. Now, there's uh, plenty of anti-comic sentiment in, the, in here, but it's uh, more based on just the, the broader culture. Uh, in it, he takes credit for putting 24 out of 29 crime comic book publishers out of business. But he still claims he's against censorship. Yeah, really, you know. And, <laughs> and, and were those, so are you saying those were the cause of something? You know, like, again, sure. like, who, who's, who is feeling, who, who is responsible? Were those publishers responsible? Is that what you're saying? Anyway, it's, it sort of seems exactly. double, double dealing here. Both sides yeah. of his mouth, yeah. And uh, this book, uh, it, it goes on about how violence is now an acceptable way to deal with problems. And yeah, uh, That was a new thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Violence had never been employed until the twentieth century. It was, it was, no, it was never, never, never considered. <laughs> um, you know, Caesar didn't get stabbed in the back, right? No, uh, not at all. <laughs> uh, now, this was uh, forced by a devaluation of human life, in which he discusses, you know, the Nazis and how they they viewed certain groups of people. Um, and this was written with a much more formal language than Seduction of the Innocent. Uh, if you remember, we said that that was written like kind of for the layman. It was written mm. for the for the half half awake uh, concerned parent. It was uh, very conversational in its tone where this might have been the more clinical take on that sort of book. And, uh, you know, further lending to that is just the fact that it's on a broader culture rather than just comic books. Right, yeah, and, and not just children either. It's, a, it's sort exactly. of about, this you know, worldwide. society, yeah. And, uh, you know, he sort of came around to comics towards the end of his life, which is very, very strange. Um, he became very interested in comics and its fandom. Uh, to the point where he even submitted letters to comics fanzines, because fanzines, you know, before the internet, how else are comic fans gonna, you know, meet and for and sure, chat? yeah. And uh, he, uh, you know, he would, he was very defensive of his, of his role in the day the comics died. That's in quotes. <laughs> the day the comics. Is that what he called it too? That's uh, that seems to be the the broader term for it. It's I wonder like the, well, the, which day was it? Was it the was it the day that the I think it was the code. findings yeah. or the day of the code or, you know, yeah. It was maybe all and none. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Sort of that whole that whole early 1955, yeah. you know. Yeah, and uh, he states, you know, again, that he was firmly against censorship. And he says that he had no part in the creation of the comics code, which is technically true. It is true. I mean, you know. He uh, didn't he, write it. You know, he, he felt that comics should restrict them themselves, but he didn't, you know. He didn't. He didn't yeah, he wasn't on the board. He wasn't part of it. Yeah. And uh, he also wrote of the code, At present, it is far safer for a mother to let her child have a comic book without the, a seal of approval than one with such a seal. Wow. And, and that comes from the Seattle Star. And it almost feels like a, an indictment of back when, you know, when comics companies would hire a mental health professional to, to endorse a comic. Yeah. Rather than the, the, rather than the CCA code. But uh, yeah, this was uh, this was against the uh, the actual comics code authority. He, he felt he he felt it was still too relaxed, or I don't know what he thought it was. I, I, maybe he just thought it was uh, wrong in in a different way. I don't yeah. know. Um, or maybe he thought that you know, since it is approved by the code of peers, that it it maybe it'll be uh, received in such a way where it uh, is denoted as a good thing when it might not be? Uh, yeah, I, I it's, it's, maybe it's, it's sort of been, yeah, it's been sort of like falsely legitimized maybe because, yeah, it, yeah. but when the, but as we're going to talk about a little bit later, you know, when the industries <laughs> regulate themselves, well, they call the shots, you know, and, and, you know, one of the things thinking about it now that Wortham did, what did stand up against was that he thought superheroes were a symbol of fascism and preparing yeah. kids for war and you know that's they did not go away in fact they became 
really the only <laughs> component of American comics for a long yeah. time. So as far as I guess from Wortham's point of view, even though they've worked out they've worked out some of the elements, some of the other main elements of comics that he didn't like are still prominent, you know. But for who sure. knows? Yeah. I can't know his mind. No, no, and as we'll get through later, as we'll get to in a moment here, we had an opportunity to find out, and we kind of blew it. Mm. Um, he he claims that his part in the key father hearings was only as an expert witness, which is also technically true. It is true. He was not uh, he was not there as part of the you know he was he was just an expert witness. He just shared what he found. Even though his and writings essentially you know were the, were the basis the of it, thing. but you know <laughs> technically he was not part of their group, so. <laughs> And uh, he claims he never called a single comic terrible. Uh, he never judged comics as good, bad, or the worst. So he never read Wacky Raceland. Right, yeah, the worst one. <laughs> he just he just called them all crime comics, whether they were Western yeah. or romance or no romance. matter what they were, they were all car- crime comics to him. They were all crime, more horror. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he actually wrote a book uh, late in his life. This, I think this might be one of his last. It's called The World of Fanzines. A Special Form of Communication that was published in 1973. And this is his book actually applauding comics fandom subculture. Wow. Uh, yeah, and this is the first, and for a while it was the only book of its kind. Uh, it was written when he was 78 years old, and uh, by all accounts and reviews, it was pretty rough. Um, he uh, is quoted as saying, fandom is not subversive, it is special. Uh, he really, really liked the, the way that, you know, the way that people would talk, and people were passionate about things. Um, He states that fanzines were a constructive and healthy exercise of creative drives. And uh, he looked at fanzines as a a positive force in the individual growth of teenagers. And, uh, you know, over the years, uh, Postcode, he received a fair share of hate mail and to his credit, he personally responded to much of it. That's incredible. Uh, Isn't it? You know, you can't say that this this was a man without convictions. You know, he he pretty much never dropped his his stance about you know comics be, you know leading to or uh, you know causing thoughts that could lead to delinquency. Yeah, but, lending too. Yeah. But he uh, you know he he also was willing to uh, you know applaud something or support something that he believed in, and and it's I really find it fascinating because. Um, Talk about unregulated. The fanzine world was, you know, what I that mean, was that's, underground. I right? mean, yeah, that's that's practically underground newspaper right there. Technically, I mean, yeah, one day we probably will talk about some of these fanzines. And if you, sure. ever, you ever see these ones from the uh, mid '60s or into the '70s, we're not talking about very racy stuff here. Usually, no. it's usually it's very uh, boring, dry stuff. In fact, yeah, very fanish. Yeah, but it's you know, there, there's nothing in there to say they can't have a werewolf. Slicing a person's face open or whatever, and sometimes yeah, there's no regulation. So uh, yeah, I, I really find, I wouldn't mind reading that uh, book myself. To be honest with you, I, I read some excerpts of it, and it's uh, and it is pretty rough. Not a, not exactly <laughs> a uh, rollicking fun read. Oh, well. No, no, it's it's uh, it's it's very dry, and it's it's it, you can tell that he you know he was he's he's an older man. Yeah. Um, See here, he was invited. To, this is this blows my mind. He was invited to the 1973 New York Comic Art Convention. Uh, he was invited by uh, Phil Suling, uh, who uh, he was one of the guys who developed the concept of the direct market, yep. which we still in, enjoy to today. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if, if we enjoy comics, we do. <laughs> we have no choice but to enjoy it. Uh, he founded Seagate Distributors in 1972, and and we're going to get to that. That's that's going to be a another. Uh, Another very, very meaty bite. Definitely. That'll be a multi-parter somewhere sometime yeah. down the line, folks. 
Now, his, uh, his appearance at the Comic-Con did not go very well. And uh, from all accounts of eyewitnesses, it might have just been, it might have been a bum rush. It might have been a setup. Uh, he was heckled and treated very poorly, uh, as you, you might imagine. I mean, but you got to remember, this guy is how old right now? He's, he's 78. Something like that. Yeah, he'd be around there, right? So, yeah, you're yelling yeah. at an old, poor old dude, you know? Who's, yeah, who by all accounts has come around. Um, and, and to some left, extent, yeah, sure. Sure. He left the pan- At least he sees value in it now. Um, he left the panel, he left the convention, he never wrote about comics again, which, if you ask me, I think that's a, that's a lost opportunity. Yeah, me too. That's, you know, that could have... I mean, imagine getting the boogeyman to actually speak on his deathbed about why he did what he did, and uh, I, I, that just fascinated Or even me. at that convention, you know? I sure. mean, like, you know, I, w- I wouldn't say... For people to ask pointed incendiary questions like, why did you find... I mean, you know, there's a lot of specific stuff that he yeah, talked about in his book. Yeah, you can put him on the spot, so but you don't could, heckle him. Yeah, you could say, like, in this panel, you know, you found this yep. un- unpleasant, but, in, you know, compared... But to, to heckle him or to jeer him or, you know, I mean... To throw it, tomatoes. <laughs> I mean, you know, as, as we went through, especially in the first episode of this uh, section, this was, this guy was not, like, some schmo off this... He was not a con man. He had done his homework. Oh. He was a respected psychologist. He kind of just came to a conclusion, a correlation... That maybe doesn't bear out. Uh, although, of course, you could really look at it both ways. Maybe it bears out somewhat. You know, maybe there's some truth to what he said. Uh, anyway, it definitely was a missed opportunity. I would have loved yeah. to be able to talk to him at the end of his life and, and yeah. see what his final being able thoughts were. Read a transcript of that. Yeah, right it would be incredible. Yeah, it would change. It would probably change the entire uh, impression, that, or maybe much of the impression that we have of the man. Probably. Um, and uh, he died uh, November 18th, 1981, at 86 years of age in a retirement home in Kempton, Pennsylvania. Wow. Uh, and as I, I think I talked about in the second episode, you know, his all of his writings were at the Library of Congress, but they yep. were uh, under lock and under key lock. for like yeah. 20 years for some reason. But they did come out recently, and uh, Carol Tilly, I believe was her name, did, did an excellent so. book on it. So uh, <clears throat> the third person in our story that he featured so prominently was our paragon of smut and horror, Mr. William Gaines. Mm. Uh, this was the guy who uh, owned EC Comics, who owned all those comics that Wortham hated so much, and also eventually produced Mad Magazine. Uh, he, he was married three times. His first was an arranged marriage by his mother to his second cousin, Hazel Grieb. Uh, I think this was probably more common than we like to admit, <laughs> but uh, they were divorced in 1947. I, I don't. I don't think it could have lasted more than a handful of years. No, uh, and if you're gonna marry a cousin, you gotta do. You gotta marry the one that's named Hazel. That exactly. Yeah, because there's nobody else's coming, most likely. So. <laughs> Uh, so her name was Hazel Gaines for a little while. Think about that. Uh, yeah. So anyway, second he married uh, Nancy Siegel in 1955. They had three children, and they divorced in 1971. And then his third marriage was uh, to Anne Griffiths in 1987, right at the end of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, at his fifth wedding anniversary, uh, they in the year that he, the same year that he passed away, actually, um, they had a big celebration in the same place they were married, which was win- which was Windows on the World in the uh, Twin Towers, which are now gone, uh, with the same entertainer that was at the wedding, Henny Youngman. And Gaines gave a speech thanking many of the people in attendance and all his old friends and colleagues that were there. But there was one guy in the crowd that no one knew who he was. No one recognized him. And Gaines got to him and introduced him as Leo Veer and said, believe it or not, if it hadn't been for Leo, Annie and I wouldn't have been married. I never... I would have never had the nerve to ask her out. 
Leo is Annie's former boyfriend who walked into my office with her 20 years ago. I took one look at Leo and realized if Annie could be interested in one fat man, she could be interested in another. She was a chubby <laughs> chaser, you know. I mean, this this was really his entire kind of attitude towards everything. He was really uh, irreverent and comical in an old New York vaudeville tradition. I like I like to say I don't know if that makes uh, means anything to a lot of people, but he definitely has that kind of sensibility. So. You know, when he switched over, we talked about last time, he switched over the Mad Magazine to the uh, the common black and white format we know it today um, and with issue 23. This was to keep Harvey Kurtzman on as editor, but it also had the side benefit of skirting the entire comics code. And, uh, you know, Mad t- was such a huge success that all the other comics went to the wayside and he continued publishing Mad for the rest of his life. It was a tremendously successful despite never putting out more than eight new issues a year, but they always had all these super special reprints. I don't know if you remember these, Chris. I think so, yeah. Uh, they were like kind a of, best of type of dealing. They were oversized, yeah, oversized. These are the ones in the rack, um, and it was they would just have reprints of anything. You could have you know, reprints of a, the lighter side of from the 60s with a parody from the 70s. I mean, it was such a... Such a a mishmash of everything. It was it was always so interesting to me from a historical perspective. Sure. And it was in one of these oversized issues, I believe it was a summer special, that uh, young Reggie, myself, saw a full-color reprint of issue number one of Mad from 1952. Uh, they actually did a series. They reprinted at least four of them. Mm-hmm. And these were the first times, and for years, the only times that I read those complete issues. They were the only ways they were available, really. Uh, yes, I, ex- I got for, my copy for when it was the Millennium Edition that came out around uh, the so, turn of the century. So they, they did it again. Uh, everyone, the Millennium seems to have spawned a lot of <laughs> a lot of reprints. You notice that everyone was really ref, really getting nostalgic around. Reflective, then. yes. Yeah, but uh, anyway, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't. They did reprint stuff, but they really didn't reprint those because they were color in the regular specials. <laughs> and since those specials were black and white, I think they didn't want to. Maybe do the originals a disservice or whatever it was. It but muddy, yeah. but uh, it, it was really an eye opener to see w- what the magazine had been, and it sort of was one of the many building blocks in my young life that got me interested in comics history and not just the stuff that was right in front of my face. Um, there were also a robust paperback. Uh, you probably remember the paperbacks for Mad mm-hmm. at every airport. Yep. Uh, everything from you know the best of Sergio Aragones to the best of Dave Berg, everybody got one, and and they had dozens and dozens of them. So these things sold by the barrel full. Uh, Gaines was a funny guy though. He was sort of it's it depends how you look at it. I like to say maybe he was either shy of success or he was very principled about his content and didn't want to compromise anything within his uh, comic. And to to illustrate this. You know, as a comic book, Mad had ads in it, like any other EC comic for Radio Flyer and whatever the hell else. You know, uh, you know, Hopalong Cassidy and and Atlas Muscle Building nonsense. Sea monkeys, yeah. sea monkeys was in there. But when it, when it went black and white, he dropped all the ads. It only ran house ads. It's unclear why he really did that, but I have a feeling it was because it was already so successful that they didn't really need him. Uh, Editor-in-chief Al Feldstein and contributor Dick Bartolo, they both said they pleaded with Gaines to take on some ads. But he said, I can't run a Pepsi-Cola ad and make fun of Coca-Cola elsewhere in the same issue. Which is interesting. Uh, You know, he did not want to compromise his satire. Um, And he also pointed out that when if he starts selling ad space, well, then these companies are going to want to have a magazine that's going to compete better on the stands. And uh, he didn't feel like he wanted to change his black and white 
format. You know, sure. I, I think to be honest, Gaines enjoyed flying somewhat under the radar in that way because he had the freedom to write whatever he wanted. But I also think Absolutely. he was very resistant to any kind of change. <laughs> that was just a <laughs> just an aspect of his life. Um, another another anecdote that kind of tells you what kind of person he was. So uh, you you found this out, but. Um, Sometime, I would probably guess in the late 50s, early 60s, Gaines sold Mad Magazine to Kinney Parking Company, which also owned National DC. Uh, this was a, a mafia car punk parking company from New Jersey. And I can tell you that, if let me tell you, if you own parking lots in New York or the Tri-State area, you're very rich. It's, yes. uh, it's quite a lucrative business to have a lot that you <laughs> charge people to just put their cars on. So uh, this kind of put him in bed with Warner Communications, uh, I guess, to some extent. I'm, I'm not 100% clear still on how it happened. No. Uh, you have other great information about this. <laughs> <laughs> Kinney Parking Company, hold on. Uh, it was owned by Abner Zwillman, the Al Capone of New Jersey, who was killed in 1959 via hanging with his wrist tapes, with his wrist taped. Uh, but Still it was ruled a suicide. suicide. It was a pretty, pretty crafty suicide there, Zwillman. <laughs> And it was suspected that Vito Genovese was behind it, but where was Kefauver when he needed him? Mm -hmm. uh, maybe it was all part of the comics connection, you know? They never got over Bill Gaines's, uh, you know, <laughs> testimony, the humiliating testimony. Anyway, uh, so the point, the point being, though, Mad Magazine was in the same building as Warner Communications, and Warner Communications, uh, around 1975, they moved to 75 Rockefeller Plaza, where I believe Time Warner still is today, I'm not 100% positive. Uh, they asked Gaines if he wanted to move Mad Magazine to the new space, uh, which would have been a, a, you know, probably a bigger, nicer space than down on sure. Madison Avenue. And he replied, well, if you were a grown child, would you want to live with your parents? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, they stayed at 40, 485 Madison Avenue for the remainder of Gaines's life. And I remember they would always have their address the MAD in Madison Avenue was always a capital M-A-D to show that mm -hmm. it was the maddest avenue of all. Um, there's another anecdote of Gaines's weird recalcitrance to, to change. Uh, at one point, Warner Books, Warner Communications offered Gaines the opportunity to join a profit-sharing program for executives that incentivize good work. Um, this, this, this sharing program was offered to him several times and explained to him like this is really a gimme. This is not. This is not a putative. No one's going to take any money away from you. It's just going to get you extra money every year. Uh, and he turned it down. And when they asked him why, he said because that philosophy assumes that I'm not doing everything I can to make Mad as good as it can be. And I tell you, that's never been the case, and it never will be the case. So if you think that by giving me a profit incentive, I'm going to work harder, you're absolutely wrong, and you've got the wrong guy here. God, you, you don't you don't meet people like that. I mean, here, here's a guy that just you know he just went the long way around to justify being lazy. To be honest with you, but also, but there <laughs> there is a principle there too, though. Sure. You know, he's saying he's saying there is no incentive for me. Mad is is as good as it's going to get, and uh, yeah, it's his life. It's. <laughs> I th I think that's that's there is a, there is a somewhat of a nobility, also a lot of humor to it. He's obviously, like I said, a huge pain in the ass to some people. Uh, <laughs> Nick Meglin, a longtime Mad editor, said of him, he was sing singularly the cheapest man in the world and the most generous. Uh, he recalls a story where he asked Gaines for a raise of $3 per week, and Gaines said no. And then he asked Meglin out to dinner, and they ate some steaks and drank wine, and the bill you know, probably came to a couple of hundred bucks, even in the uh, you know, 60s when this happened. And Meglin said, that was the raise right there. 
And Gaines replied, I like good conversation and good food. I don't enjoy giving raises. <laughs> um, but if, for a guy that was so cheap, he took the entire staff and regular contributors on an all-expenses-paid trip somewhere in the world every year. And Chris, they went everywhere. They eventually visited six continents. They visited practically every country in Europe when I looked at a list of it. They visited Japan. They visited China. They visited South Korea. They visited uh, Cambodia. They visited all throughout South America. I mean, this is over decades they did this. Yeah. This was a yearly tradition. Every so they, year. They went every year to some place. I mean, it's, it's amazing to do this. I, I can't think of... Uh, any company really of any size that would do this, you yeah. know, <laughs> even a tiny oh, so, company. So it's um, definitely not a money thing. I mean, this. I mean, one of the things this shows is that Mad was tremendously lucrative. <laughs> you know, this was <laughs> yes. not. This guy was sitting on a bundle of you know millions. We're not talking about you know he's he's making a good profit. He is making yeah, money he's beyond comfortable. Oh, he is making plenty of money. Uh, one funny one I, I read about was their first trip was to Haiti, where Gaines had the entire staff meet the one mad subscriber and allow him to renew his subscription <laughs> in person. Uh, and it was funny when they described it. It was it was like the entire staff, which at the time was probably twenty to thirty people and all these contributors, all crowded in this what is basically a guy's hut. Uh, you know what I mean? And he was like uh, sort of bewildered by it. But his neighbor subscribed to Mad, and then Gaines said the whole trip was a wild success because they doubled their circulation in Haiti. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> um, but, well, you know, funny about him, he was, though he was very generous in this way, he didn't believe in creators' rights. Uh, and, you know, the creators, I'm not positive about every piece of art and every creator, but, you know, I know Aragonis doesn't own those Mad Marginals, you know, Mort Drucker doesn't own any of his work for that. Uh, it's, you know, it's... Bristles as a comics fan, knowing that the, you know how far artists have come to get creators' rights, that they didn't have this in Mad, but you have to also look at it that the success of his business, though his model, it relied on cranking out reprints on a regular basis, and to track down every creator for every everything reprinted, and then pay them some amount, you know what I mean, and come to that agreement. It's it wouldn't have worked, you know what I mean? He he would have had to change his business model, and as I've illustrated, yeah. change was not something he was into. No. And uh, he couldn't just save it on a thumb drive at that point. No, exactly. Yeah, I mean it, it's 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 complex stuff, you know. The royalties uh, that's a department in any publisher. That's a that's a department that has full time job just figuring that out and knowing how much money has to go to uh, authors and illustrators and uh, same thing at, at our big comics publishers. Uh, but to his credit, despite not allowing creative rights, um, many of his writers, his artists, and even his staff, they worked with Mad often exclusively for decades and decades. I mean, some of them, Wally Wood never stopped. You know, he worked from 1952 until he died. You know, Jack Davis was still contributing when I was a kid. A lot of these guys, Al Jaffe worked for them for like 30, 40 years. I think he still does work for them, even now they're owned by DC. So I think this... My, you know, this is me extrapolating from that, but I have to imagine Mad was a good place to work. People felt treated reasonably fairly, um, and they enjoyed it. You know what I mean? To some extent, at least. Maybe the yearly trip went a long way. I don't know. Mm. Uh, but you know, it seems like people have good memories of it. Just want to spend a little time on other Mad products, like everything else. Games didn't want to over merchandise his brand, and he kept a very tight restriction on. Whether, you know, those Alfred E. Newman buttons and mad t-shirts that you used to be able to get. 
but they did become involved with several audio recordings. They had a Broadway musical. There was a board game. Uh, there was actually a video game, too, that I'm just remembering right now. And a movie. Uh, this movie, folks, is one of the stupidest movies you'll ever see in your life. It's called Up the Academy, and it was after the success of National Lampoon's Animal House. Kane said, hey, let me try this. Actually, the way it was done was Warner essentially gave him the opportunity, and he was like, thrust some papers in front of his face, and he said, oh, fine. Um, it was about some hijinks at a military academy, and it started Tom Poston. You might know him from the Bob Newhart show. Oh, Ralph great. Macchio, who... Karate Kid, I mean, do I have to say? And uh, Barbara Bach, who was a Bond girl from The Spy Who Loved Me and married to Ringo Starr. This movie is uh, beyond stupid, and I know that because I've seen it like five times. Uh, as a kid, we rented it all the time. I don't know why. It was like we forgot. We'd see the Mad Magazine. As I remember, it said Mad Magazine was involved on the back, but there were no logos. But just that was enough to say, like, oh, well, Mad co-signed it. Let me give it a try. And every sure. time we were like, why? Oh, we forgot. This movie sucks. Um, <laughs> Gaines was so dis- disappointed, he had all traces of Mad involvement removed from the home, the film and the home releases after that. Uh, by home release, though, it, it means only HBO, because like I said, you could see it on the videotape that I saw as a kid. And at the end, they're hitchhiking. Um, or actually, I, I can't remember exactly what happens. So they're driving away from the... Academy, and you see Alfred e. Alfred e. Newman hitchhiking, a guy in an Alfred e. Newman mask holding a What Me Worry <laughs> sign. Um, so that was on the video release, but on, on HBO, Gaines paid 30 grand to have it removed from HBO's version, wow. which is pretty crazy, <laughs> and he said it was worth every penny. Uh, Bill Gaines did pass away in June 3rd, uh, 1992, not very old. I didn't do the math, but you can do it yourself. And, uh, you know, probably from not being a very healthy person. And then Mad TV began on Fox in 1995. Now that he wasn't in control, I think the licensing restrictions were a little uh, looser. Now. And now you can get a little more Mad stuff. I mean, through DC, they have statues and all the kinds of nonsense. Uh, but Mad TV lasted 15 seasons, which I didn't, I didn't remember. Me either. Did you? That being that popular? I thought, it, I thought it was only like four or five seasons, but it kept going, boy. And it was pretty bad. I thought so. You know, my my brother. You know, what my brother would do. He he watched it and he would tape the funny skits, or just the spy versus spy stuff, or something. Yeah, like always that, and like the occasional funny skit. So what's what's interesting is whenever I watched it on TV back then, I was always like, "What a piece of junk." But then my brother would be like, "No, check out this video," and he would just have the highlights, and it was like, "Yeah, if, if you have all the highlights over like sure, a dozen great. shows, it's pretty funny." But you know, if you have to split it up. But anyway, that, that's the life and times of the great Bill Gaines. And I, I do believe he will probably get a bio someday down the line, but that's another oh, big one. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, he'll definitely get a mention again. Um, now, uh, the code didn't affect, you know, uh, publishers outside the United States. Mm-hmm. This was a, uh, you know, national thing here. And uh, around the world, they didn't have such restrictions. Uh, like uh, in the U.K., they had magazines like 2000 A.D. and Warrior. Which uh, published Judge Dredd, V for Vendetta, and uh, the uh, Alan Moore Marvel Man, which became Miracle Man over here, which uh, probably would not have made it from a main publisher or even no. one of the big two publishers out here, uh, especially in the before direct market days. You know, you had uh, the Miracle Man had that they, they had a childbirth issue, a very uh, a very uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Graphic. Here? That's the word. Yep. <laughs> It's a very graphic uh, scene here, and that was published out here by Eclipse Comics uh, through the direct market without, you know, no code needed, but they still put 
a parental advisory on it wow. just because it was that graphic. It is graphic. Um, I've seen it. It is, yeah. <laughs> there's also a scene of male rape, and uh, there's also a scene of kid Ma- a kid Miracle Man losing his damn mind and destroying London. And, uh, you know, Marvel currently has the rights to... I, I don't understand the nebulous rights of Marvel Man. <laughs> there's just so much to it. That's It's unbelievable, yeah. that's That it's might be something we cover. A crazy story, yeah. And, uh, you know, Marvel, they reprinted it, and they did a few edits while they were reprinting it, including covering covering a naked ass with some panties. They also changed and, some uh, language, I believe, recently. I think you're right. In, in some of their right. book, yeah. And uh, they started polybagging every issue of uh, Miracle Man coming out, starting with number six. Uh, so, and I, I, I have them all, but I have the, I have all the original copies, too. But uh, So I haven't really read them. <laughs> so I don't know if the edits have persisted. <laughs> Because um, I, uh, if I'm going to read them, I'm probably going to read the uh, the Eclipse versions. Um, CK, I, th- I think I think you need to do a full side by side comparison over over several months and uh, publish <laughs> your findings. I think I will. Uh, we can go over to France now, where they have uh, Asterix and the Adventures of Tantan. Mm-hmm. Not Tintin. No. <laughs> <laughs> the Adventures of Tantan is by uh, jo- uh, How do you say this name? Georges. Georges? I believe it's Georges. Georges. Remy. I'm, or Georges? I'm not sure. It's very weird. Well, it's a moot point anyway. He goes by, is it Herge? Herge, yeah. Herge, I guess, yes. yeah. Uh, and he became, it began as a serialized newspaper strip in 1929 and eventually became its own very popular comic, uh, collected into 24 albums. Uh, it's a graphic novel type thing. Yeah. And they've been... They've been translated into tons of languages, and they're almost always in print, it seems, right? Yeah, I, I don't think they've ever been out of print. I mean, they, they were in print. You know, I'm an old fuck, and they were in print when <laughs> I was a kid, and they're in print now. They seem to never yep. stop. Uh, they seem, And they do seem to find new audiences years after year. Yeah, I mean, they did have, they had the movie come out a few years back, too. That's right. Um, now, Herge here, he uh, was born May uh, 22nd, 1907. He passed uh, March 3rd, 1983 in Belgium. Um, now, the, uh, the Tantan, it deals with a lot of mid-20th century European political issues, uh, including the Nazis, the Soviets, and colonialism. And uh, during a time of, uh, of German occupation of Belgium, uh, Tantan was actually published uh, serially in a uh, Nazi-run newspaper, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, you know isn't to say that it was you know propagandist. It just it's it's a te- it's a testament to its uh, popularity. Yeah, it wasn't going to run in the Piker, you yeah, know, it's not, it's rebel not newspaper. Be on the yeah. yeah, it's it's going to be prime time. And at times it was, uh, you know, the, it, the, you know, looking at the time, looking at the era, there were some things that could be looked at as racist in it. Yeah, in in that. Just beautiful pre-civil rights era way. I just, you know, so I, I, I'm a horrible person, but that kind of stuff tickles me forever. I, I, don't, I don't know what that yeah, says about me. Especially historically speaking, it's it's. it's that's what it just, is. It's it's the history. It's like the indicator of the time. The the you can definitely see a little bit of snapshot of people's feelings at the time. And it's a touchstone. Yeah. Yeah, I've I've always ever from little rascals to uh, you know. Tan Tan, I, I just love stuff like that. But that's, uh, you know, I never claimed to be a good guy, folks. The, 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 other, the other super popular French comic uh, is Asterix by René Goschini and Albert Uderzo. Although now it's just Uderzo since Goschini died in 1977. They still do make Asterix comics, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about a bunch of Gauls who are the Celtic proto-French resisting Roman occupation. Um, I don't know if they ever say the year, but it would have to be between 100 and 200 A.D. 
Uh, the the comic is wildly popular among all age groups to this day. It began as a serial in 1959 in Pilota magazine and eventually became its own book in 1961 and released about one chunky volume a year, maybe every 10 months or something like that. So just to show you how popular it it grew, the first book in 1961 sold 6,000 copies, second one sold 20,000 copies. The ninth volume in 1967 sold 1.2 million copies. And new books sell in the millions routinely. And this is another one, too. Uh, I don't know if it's ever stopped being reprinted, translated into dozens of languages. It is a somewhat of a phenomenon. It sort of does skew towards kids, but it is read by adults as well. And, and, and I think that the weird, you know, history of the Gauls is sort of an adult theme in its way. You sure. know, sort of have to have a, a, a long view of history to even understand that. So, I always uh, thought it was uh, similar to uh, whenever I looked at it when I was younger. I always thought of Hagar the Horrible. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, Hagar the Horrible is definitely a take on that. I would be shocked if uh, that was Dick Brown. I believe drew that. I think you're right. Um, he had to know that you know. He, <laughs> that he but, was I, <laughs> but 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 the two things couldn't be more different because one no. of the, one of them is basically you know a, a series of rubber stamps placed in panels, and the other one is pretty <laughs> uh, cleverly drawn. But anyway, that's we will talk about those strips <laughs> sometime. Know. Because <laughs> uh, another artist we'd like to mention is um, uh, Mobius, uh, also known as Jean Giraud. Giraud, I guess is good. Hey, Why not? Uh, he was born May eighth, nineteen thirty-eight, and he died uh, March tenth, two thousand twelve. He created Metal Hurlant, Howling Metal. That's what that means. We are butchering all of these French words. I want to, you know, and we not on purpose. Not on purpose. We apologize. We are very stupid. We don't know other languages very well. <laughs> we are very New York. Yeah, very New York. You know, <laughs> I, we, I, we actually had discussion before the podcast about how tough it is to learn new languages and just imagine trying to read them, you know, cold off of a uh, outline. <laughs> but anyway, he created Metal Herlant, which is, which uh, is Howling Metal in 1974. This was a French comics anthology of sci-fi and horror. And he published in the U.S. On, on, under uh, the, the magazine Heavy Metal, which was distributed or created by National Lampoon at the time. This is where I got to know of him. He also contributed designs to the uh, Alien movie set. Um, really? Oh, yeah. Uh, he also contributed to Dune, I believe. Uh, okay. Both versions. The one from the... The one that wasn't the produced. David Lynch one? And then the David, David Lynch one. I think he did also do some work for that, too, to do the Sandworms. So, okay. you know, this is a really respected artist, and, you know, mm-hmm. he has done stuff that you might consider. You know, what's funny is I, I think I can, you know, there's some sexual content, definitely some nipples. But a lot of his work, you would say, would be all ages, except that it is kind of tough to grasp. You have to be an adult. It's true adult stuff in that you have to sort of have a more, you know, advanced mind to understand what, what's going yeah. on. You have to have um, a more mature taste, almost. That, like, yeah, uh, it's it's yeah, exactly. It's not puerile. It's not uh, you know. It, when we talk about Marvel when they did their Max imprint, they went right to the F word. Yeah, there are other ways to to make an adult story. Is all I'm telling you. You don't have to have peppered with curses and tits or whatever. No, it's like a it's like a marriage of East and West. When I look at his uh, his artwork, it's you can see some of the like almost a manga influence. Not saying that there was one. Absolutely, it, it, it had like a manga aesthetic, but with. Like a, I don't want to say gritty, but like a like a Western European style. Well, he'll he'll um, add he'll add sort of like a shading or a hatching yeah. of things to give it a sort of a it's beautiful work. And and, it, and it, but even though the lines are are relatively sparse, and we really aren't you know 
not doing a great job critiquing it. You have to see this stuff yourself. Yeah, we're not doing it any um, justice. But it has a real depth and a weight to it, you know, uh, more mm -hmm. than you would expect. A lot of it is the color work that he does. Just an amazing artist, uh, super, uh, you know, I respect him tremendously, super respected in France forever, and yeah. relatively well-known in America by people into comic art. And he would do some work for Marvel Comics under the Epic imprint. This was in the 80s. This was just all direct market, no code. Uh, I remember some of the work for that, too. That was sort of a comic where you could see some boobies. Yeah. Uh, he did the airtight garage for them and a comic called Blueberry. And I forgot to mention, um, he also did he also did the art for a Stan Lee Silver Surfer story. Oh, really? Parable. Wow. Which uh, gorgeous to look at. Gorgeous. Look at him. He he actually sounds like a perfect person to draw as a Silver Surfer. It, it, yeah, it's, it's like uncanny. Perfect body. Yeah. Yeah. Now we're gonna go a little bit uh, southeast of France. Here we're gonna go to Italy. I think it's southeast of France. Yeah. Um, and we're gonna discuss Fumetti. And this is a fumetti in the Italian way, not the not the more uh, the way we think about it out here, where it's more of a photo play. These are this is comics right yeah. out there. Um, now the first ever publication dedicated to only to comics in the world. Uh, I'm sorry, the first ever publication dedicated only to comics in the entire world is uh, is this Il Corriere dei Piccoli. Piccoli, I guess. Good Piccoli. enough. All right, which uh, translates to the much easier to say the Korea of the little ones. And that was in 1908. And, and, uh, and this, this was basically a standalone. I just want to say a standalone hmm. Sunday paper. Okay. So, so it wasn't a comic uh, that we would consider a saddle staple. You know what I mean? But it was all, just all comics. It was the first one of its type. Part of the Sunday supplement. Sorta, of, yeah. <laughs> now these were often of a political bent. Uh, Fumetti uh, used both against and for fascism during uh, World War II. Uh, long tradition of adult comics. They were sexualized usually, and uh, they're beautifully rendered and printed. And uh, you know, you got to think back a few hundred years, and Italy is where the Renaissance hey, you know, So they it's, uh, it's all around. Yeah. <laughs> um, many Italian comic artists are classically trained art students, and that's not to, that's not a slight on Americans or any other artists. It's just it seems that uh, it seems like there's a it's a much more stringent. <laughs> Pathway. Yeah, uh, you know, there's sort of more of an. I guess what I'm trying to get across like there is discipline. <laughs> yeah, there's more of an, an arts discipline or an arts tradition uh, of fine arts. You know what I mean? And and a hmm. lot of these guys, even early on in the early in the 20th century, they were classically trained oil painters. And I can tell you right mm -hmm. now, the guys working on action comics were not. Uh, that that's really all <laughs> I'm trying to say. It's not to say one is a better artist than the other. They're but just that, different. Just different. Just different approaches to art and just. Sure. Yeah, uh, and Italy is also the source of uh, the latter 20th century Disney comics, and still uh, where a lot of the the fancy comics are sourced from today. Mm. And it's it's a long list. Uh, some familiar names that some of the listeners may know is a, a guy we're going to be talking about a little bit later on mm -hmm. by the name of Milo Manara. Uh, also Alfredo uh, Alfredo Castelli, mm -hmm. Hugo Pratt. He did, he did uh, a famous book, Corto Corto Maltese. Mm -hmm. Roberto Raviola. Who was also known as Magnus, who did uh, Skull Island, uh, Paolo Eluteri Ser Serpieri, who did uh, Druna. Druna was also featured in Heavy Metal, and I used to love that. Also, again, really good at drawing naked women, but uh, mm. unbelievable artwork. You definitely look up if you. I know we destroyed those names, and I, re <laughs> I really enjoyed listening to Chris uh, mangle these names. But if you can find them, Druna is spelled D-R-U-U-N-A. Uh, Mobius definitely someone to look up. Just this stuff is unbelievable. You know when you really see a master at their craft. You know this, mm -hmm. these are the guys that do it. Uh, now we're gonna go even further out east to Japan, 
where they have a tradition of manga, and manga is written with a specific audience in mind. This manga is actually a tradition that goes back to World War II, yeah. uh, and I believe a little even before that. Um, little chunky novel-sized books. Uh, Tankoban is what they're called. Oh, there. really? We call them, you know, just the graphic novel idea, but they're called Tankoban out there. Oh, all right. I didn't realize, I didn't realize that. They don't do any issues, though, right? They only do those books. They do, uh, like, weekly uh, anthologies, almost. It's like you'll have eight pages of Dragon Ball. Oh, back in the day, you'd have eight pages of Dragon Ball, eight pages of Dr. Slump, eight pages of everything. And all the magazines are aimed at a certain age group. Yeah. So you'll have, like, uh, like Shonen Jump. You know, you'll, you will get to in a bit that there's different audiences, and Shonen is young boys. So it's Shonen Jump. You also have Shoujo Beat. Shoujo is young girls. Mm-hmm. And then you have the Senen books and the Josie books, which are the adult men and adult women books, which are the more mature ones. Almost, you know, it's not a, it ain't all superheroes out there. It, it's actually very few superheroes yeah. out there. I mean, so they have comics about everything. Yeah. Uh, everything. Uh, you have a, you have a, a short list here. Tennis Just players, a short list. Yep. soccer players, chefs, pirates, and wine tasters. But, uh, you know, it's... Every job, everything that's ever been, there's like yeah. a manga for it. It's unbelievable. Uh, these guys work under a punishing schedule. You know, they oh, all, yeah. they practically have to like live. Not practically, they actually do live like in their art studios, working you know ten hour days, seven days a week to crank out this stuff. It's been uh, called. It's been called a sweatshop. It's definitely there's there's an element of that to it, you know, but. It's also a testament to manga's massive popularity. I mean, they they can't keep up with the demand. These things yeah. sell by the multi millions. You know, they mm-hmm. are huge, and now it's a worldwide phenomenon. Anybody that goes sure. to a comic shop, I'm sure in America, I'm sure most of the big ones, they have a pretty dedicated manga section. Um, yeah, the manga and anime section uh, in the around the turn of the century started taking over comic book stores out here. Absolutely. Uh, now it's mostly gaming, but I mean, it uh, back then it was mostly. You know, you had the Tonka Bonds, you had the DVDs, and you had Wall Scrolls, and that was that was taking over the stores. Well, there's there's two comic shops in New York City that I'm I'm sure are just all manga, uh, yeah. and and Japanese, you know what I mean, J- Japanophile type stuff. Right, yeah. But uh, you know, it's it's big, it's a big thing, folks. If you haven't heard of it, I wonder what you've been because it's <laughs> it's pretty up there. So it's some famous manga that I'm you know you should definitely give a look to. These are some of the most famous ones. Uh, Akira by Master uh, Katsuhiro Katsuhiro Otomo Okay (laughs) Uh, This is a real real famous one Well worth checking out Lone Wolf and Cub Another one I've read That's by Kazuo Koike that one was uh, that one was made popular because I think Frank Miller fell in love with it. I believe <laughs> he so. Started, uh, he started doing the covers for the uh, for the ones that we had out here. And that kind of fed into his Ronin thing, right? He kind of got into yeah, a whole much. like Japanese yeah. style. Yeah, it, it informed his Wolverine and his Daredevil at the time. So, yeah. uh, Dragon Ball uh, Z. Is there a reason that's in parentheses? Is it well? Like... There's, there's there's two series. There's Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z. Oh, okay. Dragon Ball Z is when uh, is when Goku's an adult, and, and you probably didn't know I knew this much about this kind of stuff. But. That's all right. You know, I've, I've heard I've heard things on the wind about Dragon Ball, but I can't confess sure. to being too knowledgeable. But uh, that's by Akira Toriyama. That's mildly dirty here and again. This one, yeah. the, uh, uh, like uh, like sometimes like they have a real fixation on panties, r- which is not it's not you know way out there. But I, I think. Uh, 
even in the 80s, I think people would have a problem with that in the West, well, or you at know, least in the United States. I mean, there there also are, which I, I don't, we haven't really touched on it, there, there are just straight-out pornographic, you know, hentai manga. Oh, hentai, yeah, But, uh, you know, I also know, you know, I produce a little bit of manga. I know there's Yoni and Yaoi, and that's sort mm-hmm. of like light that's, gay situations for boys and boys girls. It's boys love and girls love, yeah. And uh, But when you read these things, it's I really found them fascinating because it sort of wasn't a thing that we don't have in America, a, a place for you know new teenagers to explore their sexuality or just you know look at just learn just learn a little bit i mean and we're talking about really innocent stuff you know like boys blushing while in the locker room together or girls hugging and you know you see a lot of panties and that too it's It's very romanticized very innocent it is uh that's not to say there isn't any hardcore but that's not what we're that's doing. not what this is, and 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 the fact they allow that. I mean, that's something that under the code never would we would have even gotten close to anything like that. Oh. Uh, and, but they have a whole area for you know young people to look at and learn about sexuality. So I really found that interesting. And a couple more titles here: Ranman One Half, mm-hmm. uh, Rumiko Takahashi is the creator of that. Yes. That has some nudity and. Uh, Osamu Tezuka, the manga god, he was born 11, uh, November 3rd, 1928. He died February 9th, 1989. He created Astro Boy, which I know from being a cartoon from the late 50s, early 60s. I don't know yep. if it was the black and white one, but that was a manga also, I assume. Uh, yes, it was. I mean, these weren't really anti-code books. You know, They would have had problems here, but there was no such code out there to go up against, you know? Uh, so he just kind of made the... Uh, books that he wanted to make that's all that's just, it just yeah. an author just like any other author of a book here in america uh one of them was blackjack 1973 that was about a underground doctor and this was pretty gory by manga standards and then in and a lot of uh, mob ties in that too because he was an underground doctor oh really so there was a uh, yeah a little little crime yeah little crime does pay sort of action oh, well freddie wortham would not have dug it and uh, in 1972, he did Buddha, which was an interpretation of the life of Buddhism founder Gautama Buddha, or Gautama Buddha. Uh, and in 1983, he did a message to Adolf, which I assume is to Hitler. There are three Adolfs in the story, one uh, of whom is Hitler. So, right. yeah, it's, it's just, uh, you know, like we said, it's not anti-code necessarily, but I think it would have been, it would have hit a brick wall out Yeah, here. well, Buddha would have had the, you know, no religion of course no yeah. mocking religion or you know uh, restriction and adolf hitler would have or adolf would have had the no adolf hitler restriction <laughs> yeah, that's, a, <laughs> that's a pretty hard and fast and uh let's see here we're going to move on to some uh some quotes by uh, a man by the name of john byrne who we're going to be discussing at great length very shortly yes he uh he, he's you know he he likes to talk <laughs> and he likes to opine when things new when newsworthy things occur and uh he did so on January 20th, 2011, when the Comics Code went away. And he is quoted as saying, The Comics Code forced writers and artists to be clever, and who wants that? <laughs> I don't know if he's just a master contrarian or if this is what he actually feels. I think, uh, yeah. I think Maybe both? I, I don't know. I think he's being but, contra- contrary, but yeah, who knows? He might be. Uh, he cites a 1985 convention panel discussion where a Dick Giordano, in response to a question about whether or not the code restricted creativity, said Lee and Kirby and Ditko all, had all produced their work on Fantastic Four and Spider-Man under one of the most restrictive periods of the code. So, I mean, that's to say that you can still be creative. You still can produce some of the seminal works, some of the iconic work, some of the most highly regarded work under the restrictions of the code. 
And uh, and then he was shown by one of his forum members a contemporary page <laughs> from the uh, the an issue of Superman, which was T-rated, so for teens. And that it, it depicted an apparent orgy and uh, gratuitous Lois Lane butt shots. I'd love to know what issue this is with the apparent Superman orgy, you know? like. Well, he wasn't part of it. It was a... Uh, I think this is actually when he was on New Krypton, so this was just another Oh, guy. okay, all right. And, uh... He says here, in the end, there's no reason for anybody to be naked in comics, movies, or on TV. Humphrey Bogart made a whole lot of adult, in the true sense of the word, movies, in which nobody got naked and nobody said the F word or shit. Yeah. Uh, you know, which is maybe a little hard line, I think, to, to say that you never have to have nudity. Maybe there are times that it is effective or useful, but... Uh, I, I, he might just be speaking to more of the... the the gratuitous, the the gratuitous nature. It, se- it seemed that we went from all to nothing, and then nothing to all. Mr. Byrne definitely makes some uh, interesting points, some talking yes. points, and we are going to talk all about some of those points after a short break that we're going to take right now. And uh, when we get back, we are going to discuss uh, our really just our feelings about the code and the, the parting shots. Yeah, the landscape of comics uh, now. After the code, so stay tuned, and we'll be talking to you soon. Here at Christian Books and More, we're more than just a Christian bookstore. We have all kinds of books for the whole family and even for collectors. Comic books are now available. If you're looking for a comic for your child, or if you yourself like comic books, we have quite a selection. For the superhero lovers and collectors, we have many Marvel and DC comics, including Spider-Man, Gambit, Green Lantern, and Supergirl. For those waiting for the next Thor movie to come out in the fall, learn a little more about him from the comics he originated. For those who like their comics more funny or old school, you should check out our big supply of Richie Rich and Archie comics. Want something a little spine-tingling? We have some vintage ghostly haunts and Twilight Zone comics. Want something a little scarier, mature, and funny? Check out Army of Darkness vs. Reanimator. We have many more comics to offer, from new ones to vintage. This month, all comics are buy one, get one for the same price or less, for free. Come by and see us today for all your comic needs. Hello and welcome back to Weird Comics History. I hope you enjoyed that little uh, break there. I played a commercial from 19, or from the recent years, somewhere in 2000, I don't know, 12 or something, uh, of a Christian bookstore selling comics. Yes. Uh, yeah, I just, I just like to show that to show how far things have come. You know, uh, 60 years ago, Christian or Catholic organizations were. Uh, Denouncing comics, and now they're selling them right next to the Bibles and Jesus Hummel figurines and whatever, whatever else you get at a Christian bookstore. Army and Army of Darkness versus the Reanimator. I mean, you know, of all, of all, <laughs> some Lovecraftian stuff. I mean, you know, it's straight up demonic stuff that would have never mm-hmm. passed the code. So, the times have certainly changed, and and as I told Chris too, I have a feeling that the needs of a Christian bookstore are those same needs of any bookstore nowadays, which is they need to sit, get people in the freaking place to buy things. <laughs> yeah, they need to hear those little bells on the door. <laughs> exactly. And, and the bells on the register, too. And they, <laughs> so too. Uh, they, they, they'll do what they have to do. So, you know, we're just going to kind of talk about uh, the comics code, its ramifications, and, you know, kind of conjecture and postulate. We'd love if you guys... Uh, wrote in to us and told us what you think about the comics code and whether you think it was a good or a bad thing or, you know, just your thoughts on it in general. Uh, you can write to us at weirdsciencedccomics at gmail.com. Um, just really curious, but, you know, here's what we think. So 
going back to Burns comment about uh, being clever uh, in, a, in a way working within the comics code you know perhaps it did actually increase uh, you know creativity in a sense it, people had to find out clever ways to work around the code um, you know you, your example here is Jerry Conway's using of the wandering wolfman and that issue of House of Secrets that eventually yeah. helped to loosen the code in 1971 and you know allowed wolf Wolfmen and Frankensteins and Draculas back into the comics. But, you know, this goes back, you know, to any comic, you know, it, it sort of changed the nature of who Batman was. Now Batman works alongside the police. He's got a deputy's badge. And yeah, he's duly deputized. It's, it's you know, it, that was more of a, of a much more sci-fi comic. that had kind of had to change gears a little bit and, and sort of change its nature. Uh, Stan Lee definitely worked you know, definitely pushed the boundaries of the code the entire time he wrote for Marvel. So, yeah. uh, you know, it, it, it's it's something, it, there, there's a case to be made for art thrives best under restriction. Um, mm -hmm. Historically, you know, you go back, it's, even even under societies like the uh, Stalinist repressive society, you had uh, Shostakovich and Tchaikovsky and these great composers that worked uh still within those systems to create wonderful work so uh, yeah it's 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 sort of a object a topic for discussion you know the jury's still out on it but um and you know with with the code in place uh you kind of have a place where you can push the envelope yeah we're sort of in a landscape now where there's nothing I think I, that would shock me between the pages of a comic book cover than nowadays. No. You know, like the 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 Pandora's box is opened, and you know, if I saw Superman getting his you know groin bitten off by a monster, I probably wouldn't even bat an eyelid right now. No, it would just be okay. That's, That's a, just what's happening right now. Uh, you, I mean, you have a, a good example here though from the radio. You know, when Howard Stern was on the uh, regular. Network radio or whatever you call it. Over the air, yeah. Public radio over the air, yeah. Uh, he had to be creatively crude. Uh, he wasn't allowed to curse. And there would often be, you know, things happening in the studio, like they'd have a stripper come in, they would throw sure. baloney at her, or they would, you know, make her say suggestive things, but they couldn't, you know, have her jump on a sex toy or something like sure. that. Uh, but when he did move to, uh, I believe it was Sirius first, but it was satellite radio. Now it's all the same thing. Yeah, Sirius XM is the same thing. Now. It's all it's all the same company, but it was one of the. I can't remember which one it was at first. I but think it was Sirius. Yeah. He immediately started just cursing, being raunchy, chicks hopping on the Sibian, and uh, you know what I mean. Like, just like the door was open, and now it, it, the show lost its punch. You know, it, yeah, the, the pendulum swung too far. It was it was just a guy talking dirty. You know, there was no there was nothing lascivious about it. Uh, it's not getting away with something, I guess. And there's something to be said for, you know, working within a restriction to get away with something. It can can have a more it gives powerful you something effect. To root for. It, yeah, it, I guess so. Yeah. Uh, or you know, you're just like, wow. I, you know, I can't believe they got away with that. Yeah. Whereas now, like I say, there's nothing. You know, there's nothing yep. that you know you really are shocked by. So it sort of takes away a lot of the surprise you might see uh, or experience. You know, taking in this kind of entertainment. Um, another change is digital reprints. Uh, they have revised internal ratings, and I'm a, you know I use digital reprints quite a bit. So, but for example, uh, Superman Volume Two, Number Twenty One, 1988. That was a totally code-approved book. I assume that was uh, 
a burn book, right? Remember yeah, that? it was the uh, first part of the Supergirl saga, which I I reviewed earlier on the weekend. It just made me think. It's like, hey, I wonder if this is if, if this has been you know revised. In so far as the code rating, of course, and it had been. Now it's now it it's rated TT uh, twelve and up. So, what this in a way, what are we saying that you know the code was not, you know, was not stringent enough back in the day, or I guess it, it wasn't divisive enough. It didn't have enough like, you know, didn't have enough tears or it, yeah, it's, something like that. It's it seems it seems strange that a book totally approved for all ages in 1988 is suddenly restricted. Although, teens. only by name, really. <laughs> sure. We'll talk more about those kind of restrictions later. But, yeah, it's restricted to teens all of a sudden. So, did kids change? What changed, you know? And uh, <laughs> it, it's it's just, it's sort of, it sort of shows the silliness of this kind of internal um, censorship, you know? That mm. it's it's totally arbitrary. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's whatever the guy in charge or whatever the people sitting around the, the boardroom table feel that at that minute. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, mores change and, and ethics change over time. But I just find it hard to believe that in you know less than twenty years we're talking about here. You know, the content in a Superman comic suddenly is too much for a ten-year-old to handle. Like what? Yes. You would think, to be honest, with the kind of information ten-year-olds get today, <laughs> <laughs> they, they'd be fine with them. Yes, this would be bedtime reading. <laughs> Now, um, we we discussed this a lot off the air here, uh, comparing, you know, the uh, internal, you know, the the self-regulation comics code with if it was left up to the feds. And uh, we were trying to figure out if it would have been more or less restrictive. And we both figured that if the feds actually came in and did this, it would be quite a bit less restrictive. I definitely think so. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. You know, because it would be in litigation constantly with the publishers. You know, this is going against the federal government all the time. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And, For every single decision that they made, there would be a lawsuit, I'm sure, or practically yeah. every decision. And, uh, you know, we, we couldn't imagine that they'd want to, they, they'd be able to banish words like weird or horror from a comic book title where, you know, the code authority could because it was it was a, a group of peers. Yeah, you know, it was, you know it's, it's, it, a company can decide whatever it wants about what it's going to sure. publish. But the feds, they can't. They, there's a limit to what they can impose. They're guided by other things, as, as you're going to talk about. I don't even think they would have even. I mean, you know, when we talked about it last time, weird and horror were definitely targeted to eliminate Bill horror Gaines. comics and Bill Gaines's <laughs> comics primarily. You know, uh, I don't think that that would have been a, a federal agency's motive. You know, they just would have, would have wanted to restrict the content. Yeah, but as was, far as commerce, they're going to yeah. let commerce flourish. Yeah, they, he was probably not on their radar as much as he was the uh, the, yeah. the group of peers. <laughs> right. Now, the, the key father hearings, they opened with a statement, as we went over, by uh, Chairman Richard Clendon, and they made it very clear that they did not seek to censor comics. We don't know how true that might have been, <laughs> but, mm. uh, you know, any federal agency, they would have been guided by the First Amendment and the Supreme Court rather than the self-regulation whims of, of the publishers of the day. Yeah. So, you know, they, they would they would answer to a higher power. <laughs> yeah, and, and there would have <laughs> Depending been grounds. Depending on your mileage. I mean, I mean, you know, the, the when the publishers that voluntarily joined the CCA, they have no grounds to sue the CCA. That's like suing your own foot. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it, it doesn't make any sense. Whereas, you know, if it's being imposed from outside, there is... There's a law involved, you know, and, and some of these cases would have gone to the Supreme Court. It would have been a very, obviously, very different story. But, uh, yeah, I think we both agreed that it, we think it mm-hmm. would have been much less restrictive than what was initially imposed. 
you got to figure they were they were definitely overcorrecting because they did not want people breathing down their necks. It's just it's like okay, what is what is even in the slightest bit threatening here that we can get rid of? And I also think that a lot of the publishers they benefited by shrinking the marketplace. You know that, that they that that you know Archie Comics and, and National and, and Timely, they had a vested interest in getting rid of these. Uh, Shelf space. Yeah. There were so many. Publishers, as we as we talked about before, Wortham was proud of having gotten rid of twenty four out of twenty nine mm-hmm. horror comics publishers. So that's a lot. That's a lot of c- publishers cranking out comics. So yeah, uh, you know, a lot of this, I, I definitely believe that a lot of their code decisions were predicated. They were business decisions rather than morality sure, decisions. Sure, sure. And uh, you know, uh, eliminating the code, it, it's made comics uh, generally more brutal. You know, we have a instead of a mature readers line like we would uh, have in the in the eighties. Now yeah. we need an all ages line. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Uh, it's it's weird. It's like you know, kids these days shouldn't be reading the kind of, it, it, they they shouldn't be reading the kind of comics that are part of the mainstream. You don't want you don't want your eight year old reading about the Superman orgy and seeing Lois Lane seductively bend over a table. Right. <laughs> you know, because they're written for a. Uh, "Quote unquote grown audience." Yeah, I know you, you got to handle that kind of carefully because it's yes. it's debatable. But I, I I get the point. Now the only books left for the kids they're, they're few and far between, and they're often like blatantly kidding. It's like okay, this comes from the cartoon show. Yeah. Or this is you know it's 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 not what I think real quote unquote readers think as as real comics. I mean, frankly, what the kids get is just more cross-merchandising bullshit. You know what I mean? They yeah. get, like, the Teen Titans Go. And, the and, yep. and uh, uh, you know, uh, but the ponies, the My Little Ponies, and, you know, you, you see the comics for them, and it's just, yeah, the buy the toy, buy the... And you know you watch can, the show. Yeah. You can you can buy the toy for the mainstream comics too. Let's not let's not pretend that. But those <laughs> toys will are yeah. You know, those those are those are busts. You know what I mean? Or they'll be marquee statues or something. And and it's or a thirty dollar Shazam action figure. I I I just can't help but think of a comic like uh, the Adventures of Ten Ten, which is really truly an all ages comic. Mm-hmm. Really nothing in there that's going to offend anybody. It's just something that's smart enough for older readers, but that young people can understand. And, yeah. uh, you know, we don't have that anymore. It's so divisive. No, it uh, is. You know, and, and this is in other industries, too, other industries, as we'll get into. Uh, you know, they really split up these, the, the demographics are split up from, you know, these age groups that I just wonder, I mean, I guess they're all based on hard marketing data or whatever, but uh, it just seems so arbitrary. Like, why can't, you know, you see, you see stuff like, you know, a book or a toy for a kid age two to four, and then one for five to seven, and it's like, what, what happened between four and five? That was so, you know, I know there's a lot of growth, but uh, <laughs> what happened that, they, that this, suddenly this toy is useless to a yeah. five-year-old? But anyway... <laughs> What happened was they want you to buy a new toy. So nowadays we have, <laughs> instead of uh, within the comics industry, we have kind of a social media regulation of comics. And yes. uh, it's a real thing, folks. It's not just us uh, hemming and hoing because it has real ramifications. Two very recent things that happened were uh, a Batgirl variant cover. And God, I wish we had remembered to get the issue number. But this was... Uh, a couple of years ago, it was Raphael Albuquerque. Am I right? Yes. That was who did the. It was Albuquerque. He did the variant of a uh, of Batgirl. It was actually a, a Joker month, I believe. Was the the I variant? Think it, month. I think it was the first month back after Convergence. I believe so too. It was, it was like the first DCU month, so that would have yeah. been two years ago, right? Yeah, uh, or a year ago. It last been a, year. Yeah. That's right. It would have been last, last year, last uh, June or July, and. Yeah. 
Anyway, he originally made a cover that I thought was pretty clever, pretty well done. It was the new Batgirls uh, in her new outfit, her purple. The Burnside outfit. The yeah. Burnside outfit. That's, that's, a, that's a fun way to put it. <laughs> and and uh, Joker with his arm draped over her and a gun pointing, and it's sort of menacing. And she, I think she's got a Joker face scrawled on, right? Doesn't it's her yeah, lipstick I, done up like that? Yeah, and I think he's wearing his Hawaiian shirt, too. It, it's a very menacing shot, definitely calling back to the killing joke, which a lot of people on social media just feel should be eliminated from the record or should just be, you know, banished or, you know, copy should be removed from everyone's home and, you know, yes. thrown in a bonfire or something. And, Sounds uh, familiar. There was, a, there was a social media campaign to force DC Sand to pull from the issue that the creators even got involved in. Mm-hmm. You know, Cameron Stewart and Brendan Fletcher and Babs Tarr, to a, Babs to a lesser extent, but she was still... Uh, you know, acting in solidarity. Sure. They said things like, you know, the killing joke will never be a story on our watch, and, you know, we don't yeah. think that's appropriate for the new Batgirl. That's not who she is, and whatever. And, uh, God, I mean, I could talk about just the mis- <laughs> the misunderstanding of this story or, or the, the, the gravity given to this story in recent yes. years that is just unwarranted. You know, it's, uh, you know, just real quick, it's, it's a beautifully drawn story. I've always thought Absolutely. it was it was pretty clever in some ways. Had some literary flaws, but it's neither the alpha or the omega of no. Batman or Batgirl. And uh, people really make it a, a big thing. There's so much more that could be said about it, yeah. but we don't. I mean, it, it just it facilitated Barbara Gordon's change from kind of a jokey side character to perhaps the most vital person in the DC universe. I, I mean, it's, it's, it can't be understated. Oracle was yeah. one of the most interesting and important and smart characters and, and, the, and crossed <laughs> over into several comics. The Justice League checked in with her before they acted. It, it, you know, it, she was important. <laughs> and she, she, was, she was handicapped and like a real, you know, a real hero, you know, more than yeah. even some other more typical heroes. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and you're right, like, before the... The reason they were able to do that to Barbara Gordon in The, kill, in the Killing Joke, because Alan Moore did ask yeah. uh, the publishers if he could do that, and they were... And, and he I got, think a, they he got a very like, famous response. What was, what was the response? The response was, and, I'm, and this I've read uh, multiple times, was Cripple the Bitch. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> I, you know, I know, you know, Alan Moore could kind of write his own ticket, but I think they were okay sure. with it because, Bar, you know, Batgirl wasn't doing much, wasn't so unbelievably beloved that you know oh. it was it was shocking enough that it was going to you know cause an effect, but it wasn't like Alan Moore asked if he could you know cripple Superman or no, Bat or Batman for God's sake, you know. Yeah, like, there's a lot of revisionist history. There sure, there definitely is this this belief that like Batgirl was. Uh, it was a huge character. This this wasn't like the death of Supergirl in, in Crisis, but no. um, yeah, I I really have to ask. I mean, for the, for one thing, this was a variant. Yeah. So there was an option not to get this cover. In fact, the option to get hard. this cover was harder to get. Yeah, exactly. You would have to ask for it. You would have had to go to your store or you know order it specially and maybe even pay. Uh, pay more. I, pay more. I'm not sure if it was an incentivized variant, but I, I wouldn't doubt not that sure. it was, yeah. frankly. Um, like, how much was this really going to affect sales? The bottom line, it seems not at all to me. Uh, they just kind of got rid of a, a nice piece of artwork by a super talented artist. It would have come and gone. And and, and since this was the end of it, you know, since this was a decision, DC did make this decision themselves, obviously. But it was after this pressure 
from social media. So is that a kind of a censorship? Is that a social censorship mm-hmm. is the question. Uh, I think the case could be made that it is. Um, you know, did they, were, were the people against the cover, were they more upset that it would have sort of legitimized the Killing Joke story even further? Uh, if, it, if it had a, a favorable market reception, if people really bought a ton of them, well, they might have said like, oh, well, you know, we got to, uh, they might have been afraid that DC would have been more pro the killing joke and they didn't want this in our comics like i said cameron stewart did say not in our watch which was because yeah, there seemed to be a lot of blanket statements made where where people were saying that and i bolded this in our outlines like we don't want this in, in our, our comics, comics. <laughs> well, who's our who are we yeah exactly yeah it's you like know? have you really talked to everybody or you know there's a lot or anybody of, <laughs> there's a lot of people you're right yeah or anybody like have you really taken a consensus or are you just being very noisy about it uh there's a lot of people I think, and I, I, I'm not a huge variance buyer, but I like that cover a lot, and I, you know, mm-hmm. I definitely could have been the one that bought it. I sometimes I bought the uh, a lot of Darwin Cook variants during mm-hmm. a month they did those. So uh, that was, I think, a case where we could say there was a form of uh, censorship or pressure yeah, that code censorship that led to DC, you know, making that decision. Well, I mean, a real censorship would have been. Uh, a mob stormed the printing press <laughs> and, and, burned s- and burned it down or smashed all the plates and, you know, broke broke Raphael Albuquerque's Kirky's hands. It's so, right yeah, it's not like, uh, it's not exactly censorship, but mm-hmm. it is it is a pressure that yeah. led to a self-censorship by DC, you know, uh, to reverse a publishing decision. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's what it is. And uh, across the street at Marvel, we have another uh, instance here, the uh, Milo Manara. We said we were going to be getting back to him, the uh, butt cover <laughs> for Spider-Woman. Right. Uh, now, Milo, uh, he was uh, born uh, September 12, 1945 in Lausanne, Italy. Uh, he's a member of the Jack Kirby Hall of Fame, being inducted in 1998. Wow. He is a very well-known, very uh, sort of porny and erotic artist. Marvel had had to have known what they were getting when they sure. hired him to do this job. Um, now, <laughs> Spider Woman's she's almost in an exact pose that Spider Man has been on in many of many covers. It's basically the butt up in the air. Yeah, and I, I've seen I've seen like morphing gifs of Spider Man and Spider Woman in this same pose, just showing how close like, they are. But yeah, it's yeah. it's it's a total. I mean, I you know I think Manara definitely knew what he was doing. I think he looked at. He was like, oh, this will be sort of like a interpolation of those poses, and it'll be a woman, so it'll be, you know... It'll be it's sexy. Things yeah. have, but, but also just, you know, <laughs> changing the status quo, you know what I mean? Sure. Just like, you know, you expect in Spider-Man, but here we have a woman. Take that for Yes. <laughs> and, and I gotta wonder, if not for the outrage, would anybody have noticed or cared? Yeah. I don't think so. Spider-Woman many, is not a huge character. <laughs> how many people were, have ever bought Spider-Woman? <laughs> Uh, at this point, we're at six volumes of Spider-Woman. This is per the Marvel Wiki. Only two have made it past a year. And one of them was the John Byrne, uh, Maddie Franklin Spider-Girl. Oh, really? Spider-Woman. <laughs> not, even, not even Jessica Drew. Yeah. So Jessica Drew has had one book in 30, 40 years that's made it past a year. And that was the very first one. Yeah, but, but so who's reading this? Who's who, who would have noticed? But suddenly, for this cover, it you know it becomes a, a major source of outrage, and, and it's totally manufactured. I think I think that you're totally right about that. Hmm. Uh, you know because uh, you know as far as far as I'm concerned, I, I'm not I'm not an anatomical expert, but there were it was funny 
how many anatomical experts there were on the internet right around this time. Suddenly, everyone had gone to medical school and understood so much about the way people could pose. But as far as I was concerned, you know, it, it's a funny, it's a, it's a somewhat an awkward pose because it's a spider pose. It's, it's, oh, it's, it's ridiculously I, overblown, but it's, 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 it's comic book art. It's comic book art, but it, it, there's nothing impossible about it, you know what I mean? It's, it's, sure. it's, it's super well rendered, and, and this, this image was even, I think... Uh, nicer than the uh, Albuquerque image. Two different styles, really, though. I'm sure. not going to uh, say one was totally better than the other. They were two different things. And uh, this also got cut. This got cut due to pressure from uh, the Internet, primarily. Um, and it just seems, uh, you know, unfortunate that the, that we were restricting the number of options. Uh, this was also a variant, right? Am I wrong? Yeah, I, yeah. I believe it was. I'm almost positive this was a variant. There were a couple of variants for this. So again, if you don't want that, you don't want it. You never had to have it. Never. But those that wanted it, why why can't they have it? That's that's the real question. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I, I I would love to pose to some of these people that that seek to limit, you know, publishing plans and things publishers want to make. Uh, you know, there are other. Examples. These are two really recent examples, but it seems to come up almost weekly. Um, some outrage yeah. over something or other, and that something shouldn't have happened. Uh, there's such a level of entitlement to it that it really makes me sick. You know, because it's, yeah, it, you know, I, you know, this. Is, I'll tell you, there's no love lost between uh, editor in chief or Tom Brevoort and or you and I. But <laughs> he he says something that that I I agree with. He says a few things I agree with, and one of them, you know. The deal between the customer and the publisher is that they publish comics, and your option is to buy it or not. You know, and yeah. and, to, and to aid you in that, unlike any other creative industry in the world and throughout time, they basically give away a quarter of the comic before they even sell it. So you could make that decision whether you Absolutely. know what I mean. Like that's unbelievable. You know, to give away that. Imagine before you saw a movie, you got to watch the first you know third of it Half or something. Hour, yeah. it. Be like, what the hell? But. Uh, so, so you, you can't say that, that they're not informing you and they're showing you the covers and you can read the solicits. I mean, you, you know, you can practically put together the whole story over a couple of solicits. It's not, we you have know, too much information. I yeah. would say we do have too much information. So, but these people, you can't pretend you've been blindsided. You know, no. it's like you see it's coming down the pike. If you think it's not something you want, avoid it. Don't buy it. If you want, if you want to, quote unquote, speak with your wallet and organize a boycott, you can do that too. But to... Put pressure on these publishers. It just seems disingenuous. And if I can editorialize briefly here, putting you know, paying you know, voting with your wallet only works if you were going to buy the thing in the first place. That's true. Yeah, no one's going to notice the the, the lack <laughs> of your money if you were because you weren't buying it anyway. You know, and I'll tell you something right now, Spider Woman. Not really doing great numbers right now. Is it even out anymore? I don't even know. If it's I think still it out. ended. Yeah, I think I think they had they ended it finally because it like dwindled down to below you know eight thousand copies a month. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, that's how we feel, folks. What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) So some of these cases, is this the result of overcorrection? Is this sort of a backlash to the backlash? Uh, You know, sort of like a postcode social code, I guess we could Hmm. say. You know, Uh, the first backlash was to the restrictions of the code, and it was people railing against it trying to get it changed, which they did in 1971 and 1989. Right? Is that right? Yep. but the second backlash is due to the extreme creative freedom. Now that we can have anything, now maybe we want to put some of that back in the box. You know, maybe we don't want all of this, uh, you know, smut and violence and whatever in our comics. 
And sometimes you wonder if social media would rather a code be reinstated. They definitely, what's you know, they don't. People on social media don't act as a unit necessarily. You know, different no. people have different ideas, and that's part of the problem here. But it definitely, I think some of them would like to have their version of a code in place. Yeah. Um, but a lot of that code, I think, would be r- ridiculous because it would be stuff like Batgirl is always victorious and always, you know, strong in every panel. She never has and, any conflict. And recently, the Red Hood has to be Hispanic and gay. For example, you know what I mean? <laughs> or, you know, uh, you know, all all non-white characters must be done by non-white creators and, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, it's a, you know there are a lot of weird rules that that almost strike me as being hypersensitive and hyper aware of mm-hmm. what is a real uh, you know problem of representation in in uh, media in this country. Although, as you and I have said before, is that really the biggest problem in in our country as far as representation <laughs> and 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 equity? You know what I mean? Like I yeah. I, I think before worrying about how Spider Woman is portrayed on a on a comic cover, I sure would like to see women get equal pay for the same work. You know, if, if that could happen, I think we could let a Milo Manara Spider-Woman cover go past our notice once or, once I, or twice. I think you're missing the bigger picture here. <laughs> yeah. Her butt was up in the air. Oh, that's still, you almost, you, she almost <laughs> cut a fart and people could have smelled it. Uh, and then, you know, the, but the people that seem to want to have this code, you know, they, it's, where's it all coming from? Uh, I think that if we were to take a survey, and I have no intention of taking such a survey, so don't no. don't worry about it. But you would get, you know, if you, if you if you asked a hundred people, you'd get a hundred coats. You know, yeah. it would there would be no there would be very little overlap between them. Uh, some people can't see certain things. Some people are triggered by certain things, and mm-hmm. that's just the way of the world, folks. Uh, you know. And comics fans, I don't think you could... If you get a room full of us, we couldn't agree on how to make a, a picture of Kool-Aid. No, it's true. Everyone, you know, everyone's got their own favorite character that can never be impugned, mm-hmm. and everyone's got their own idea of how stories must go at all times. So, it, it, you know, it's sort of, again, it's disingenuous. It's a farce, this belief that, you know, we, quote-unquote, we don't want our comics to look a certain yep. way. There is no we, there is no our. We all have our own opinions, and I think that... Mm-hmm. You know, comics continuing the industry continually tries to reach the broadest groups that it can, and stuff like this restricts that. Yeah. Uh, it's unfortunate that that happens. Says um, Stan Lee from uh, Excelsior. Uh, he has a couple of quotes. He says, uh, "Never give the fans what they think they want." Mm-hmm. Uh, to follow that up, Marv Wolfman said, "The duty of the writer and editor is to to the long term financial and creative success of the book." And not giving fans what they think they want, uh, you know, this is this is so true. I, I I often I think I've told you about this with Superman. Whatever Superman does, there's somebody out to say that that's not right. That's the wrong sure. Superman. I really think there's a contingent of people that want Superman comics to be of him, uh, you know, saving a cat in the tree, <laughs> and then he and Lois in the kitchen for 20 pages chit chatting. That's it. So like, you know, maybe while well, maybe while well, he makes a stir fry. And uh, he could talk about past adventures, but there will never be, he'll never be any danger. He'll never be forced to, you know, have any conflict. You know, there'll never be anything happening. Uh, and that's boring as hell. Like, well, why would anybody want to read that? And it's, it's you know, it seems like, like we were saying, people have their pet characters, and Superman is definitely one of them. And I know a lot of people were turned off. I, I, I don't see any of the movies, but I heard that I think he killed somebody in Man of Steel. Yeah. 
He killed Zod at the end. I'll, I'll spoil Zod it for and, you. Yeah, and uh, and I remember on social media that Superman would never do that. And I reviewed a comic a couple of days ago where Superman kills Zod oh, God. from what's, 1988. What's funny is that this... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. And then there was one where he sent Zod... I mean, as we talked uh, on Cosmic Treadmill, yeah. you know, sending these guys to the Phantom Zone is a worse fate than <laughs> killing them. Fate. That's way worse. Like It's like an eternal limbo of... of, of of seeing the world go by, you know, while you, you know, don't exist. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I definitely, I mean, Superman is a comic. I really think people want Superman to be a certain way so they can never have to read the comic again. And that's not, that's not how comics work. You know, they want you, they want to draw you in. You know, they go maybe over the top these days. But they, in a way, I, I feel for the publishers because they have to. You know, you're like, yeah, what, well, what's going to get someone? Out of the bag. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They've all been used, and, you know, there's no more code, so there's nothing to push against. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you're definitely going to see Superman, you know, doing bestiality, and, you know, uh, Green <laughs> Green Lantern is going to be a pedophile. This, this is all in our future, <laughs> folks. Um, you know, the same kind of things we've been talking about. These social media, these vocal people on social media, how many are there? I really would love to see a head count. You know, are we talking about a thousand people? Are we talking about ten thousand? Are we talking about five? Sometimes, how much money are they pumping into the industry? That's a, you know, there 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 is a lot to be said. There, there's, uh, you know, without getting too specific, I've definitely seen people champion books as being the best books because they have uh, represent a character in the way that they like or they do something they like, and, and they you know they're play. like. Well, whether they do or not, the book is selling 4,000 copies, yeah. you know what I mean? So it's like, obviously, this contingent is not there of of people that will support uh, comics just based on their um, political correctness or, or yeah. fulfilling an agenda. You yeah. know, if they're not... A special interest, yeah. They're not, always, they're not there, you know what I mean? And I'm not saying that they can't get there, but... One way to get them there is by making comics people want to read. First of yeah. all, you know, it's like get the people to into the store to open the freaking things and read them, and yeah. then we can we can assess, you know, what with the fan base. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. We don't really have that kind of luxury right now. It seems to be really fractured, and I don't think quite as big as uh, even though comics are doing pretty well right now. You know they don't sell in the massive numbers they have in the past. It's yeah, just it's, that's just compared to compared to everything being a cancellation level. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. It, you know, it's it's doing better than it did in in 2010. Um, yeah. I think it's also created kind of a smaller, more closed economy, so it can be supported by fewer people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, it it kind of does put it on the edge. It just means like maybe the this is again postulating. I have not crunched the numbers, but. I definitely believe that a loss, say, of uh, 5,000 readers a month, just like all, all at once, would be calamitous to a lot of these publishers and definitely a lot sure. of these comics. Uh, you know what I mean? They are on the edge. They are not, you know what I mean? They are uh, a hairline between bankruptcy and solvency. And, uh, I mean, there's a reason why we're getting two issues of all the heavy-hitting DC books every month now. For sure, yeah. It's, uh, they, they definitely looked at the numbers of what number one issues do, and they were like, we, will, we can <laughs> we'll make that happen twice. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll take two, please. Um, so, you know, th- this is just something Chris and I have kind of been mulling over. Again, we'd love to know your thoughts. Does social media censor uh, or, or impose a sort of pressure that leads to, to yeah, censorship to. Um, or lend to cens- censorship? Uh, how, how do you think that works? How do you, how do you think we're off base? Do you think that where you are, 
uh, incorrect and and curmudgeonly. Yeah, possibly curmudgeonly. <laughs> well, you know, it could be also uh, you know publishers when made aware of an, a discrepancy are quick to correct because they realize that the times are changing and you know mm -hmm. there is. Uh, more acceptance of, of different people in this world. So I, I, there is another argument to be made. I don't want sure. to say that, you know. It's not all bad. It's exactly. Just being, it's being done, I think it's being approached with outrage rather than sincerity. It, it's, it does seem that way. It's, it seems like the noisiest, the squeakiest wheels are the ones getting the grease, and that's, uh, we don't, I don't really like that, but that's just, no. uh, that's definitely the opinion part of this. Mm -hmm. Now we get to a part that we had a lot of difficulty we weren't sure <laughs> and to be honest even now ladies and gentlemen i don't know if you're going to hear what we're about to say because it's this might get cut <laughs> it's really difficult to, only because it's sort of a clunky uh heavy subject but it's about creators today kind of presenting more of their own personal agenda through the comics mm -hmm. um so I don't even, Chris, help me out here. How, 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 do, how do we jump in this one? We, we, you know, we can just go right to a line of the code where they said that authority is pretty much never to be questioned. You know, the police, the government officials, the clergy, everyone has to be looked at, uh, you know, uh, positively. Positively, yeah. And uh, we kind of still have that if you're the kind of authority that the creators agree with. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's up to the authority. It's up to the creator. So you, so you can have a hero like Superman recently standing mm -hmm. up against cops sure but and we had that we had that uh, wonderful batman issue uh back uh, batman was at 44 that eric liked so much oh right 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 that was about yeah police uh, brutality and, and yeah killing. it was another torn from the headlines that's right that's that, right that, pre that presented an agenda maybe not so much an agenda but uh, someone's prism of interpretation uh but i mean over the past 15 years we had uh We've had Spider-Man fist-bumping Barack Obama, and we've had George Bush wetting himself on the lawn of the White House. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. So, so, well. So clearly, so clearly, it's not that you know presidents must be respected or mocked. It's it's a specific, like you say, agenda for that creator of of what yeah, they how what they felt about what was going on. Yeah, and I mean, I, I don't have a dog in either race, but it, it just seems very pointed, and. Uh, and, and you know we, we we like to pretend that we're a very informed nation, but I think a lot of us are not. I think a lot of us get our information from certain sources that may not be news. Yeah, very biased sources, you know, uh, and it could be very subtle. Or On both can, sides. Absolutely, yeah. And, and, On it, both it can, and all sides. <laughs> it can be subtle, or it can be very obvious, like George Bush wetting himself or something like that. But yeah, it's yeah. it's you know to, to be to be sure, I wouldn't be surprised. You know, we go back to Wortham talking about how comics influence juvenile delinquency yep. and, and you know we even though we thought that he was being a little histrionic about it we definitely had to had to say that some of these comics were pretty rough and that a kid with proclivities you know a kid that might already be torturing animals might see something in there and take Get validation and I, th I think that that's simply exactly and i think that's similar that could happen here somebody who isn't you know quite maybe formed in their politics they might get some of their politics from a creator of the Hulk or whatever it is, you know what I mean? Sure. Uh, which, you know, is that a role that comics should be playing? Is, is that something that uh, a, a corporate intellectual property should yeah. be doing? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's I, I, I remember being very pleased when they elected Lex Luthor president because it meant that we were not going to see a real president. Yeah. 
because I don't I don't think that's comics place and, and, and that's just one one you know idiot's opinion but uh, I, I like to yeah, and this is gonna sound like what everybody else says this is escapist entertainment yeah I you know we we, we hear on the radio we watch on the news it's there's crap everywhere and whether you agree with someone or not it's it's always in our faces so the comics are just like like the last bastion of Oh, I can just watch Superman punch someone in the face, or I can watch Superman do a, a daring rescue mm-hmm. of somebody and not have to worry about who I'm gonna who I'm gonna check off a box for. Right, and, and you know I think that by using real world characters, that's something I, I dislike that too. Jim hates that also. Yeah, uh, you you're limiting yourself narratively. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. You know if you're right, if you want to write a story about a evil president. You know, and you're and you're limited to the existing president. Well, you know what I mean. You, that's up to, I guess, again, the creator of whether that works or not. Steve Englehart, he, where he made President Nixon a, a uh, the head of a super secret society in I mean, the seventies. That, that worked. That worked himself. for him. Yeah, that worked. <laughs> I think that was a little wish fulfillment. But you know, he 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 stuck himself in that in that hole by doing that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it's. I don't like to see it either. I I, I you know. I do like to see the story served more than the politics Project. or the yeah. agenda. You know, uh, it's you know, it's not like the recent issue of uh, Suicide Squad, which just came out, sort of has no one says a name, but it's Obama. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that, in that role, he sort of just plays a guy that's telling Amanda Waller, you know, your Suicide Squad is out of line. You got it. Da 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 da. That's. A, one use where it could be anybody, you know what I mean? The yeah, fact that it looks, about, yeah. the fact that it looks like Obama is just relevant because it is Obama, uh, Barack Obama, right now. But it could be anybody, and that's one use. But when it's a president heading a, super, uh, a society of supervillains, or a president that's you know hanging out with Spider-Man, you're or saying Ronald you're, Reagan putting uh, putting you know uh, putting his uh, his uh, big kibosh on superheroes during that DC Legends thing back uh, in the mid '80s. That was Reagan too, or even Reagan yep. in the Dark Knight Returns, kind of like yep, talking about both sides. Now you are presenting a political agenda, and it's a question, I think, whether that's really something comics should do, or, or whether something a uh, creator of, of of mass entertainment should do. Um, I don't know the answer to it. It, it bristles sometimes it's, to see yeah. it, but it's uh, that doesn't mean that it's wrong. It doesn't mean that it's right. That's that. That's just all part of the discussion. Um, you you end with some. Uh, well, I don't know if you have a ton a ton to uh, add, but you do have uh, some quote from me that you know it's it's <laughs> all about tolerance and and, yeah. and tolerating each other. Has nothing to do with agreeing with each other. It no. has to do with putting up with each other. You know what I mean? That's like, you know, we Chris and I have talked before about New York racism. Uh, it's a real thing, folks. But New York racism is the kind of thing where someone has uh, bigoted feelings, but you still got to stand next to people on the bus. That's you know it. what I mean? You still got to you still got to buy your uh, newspaper from somebody you, mm-hmm. you know you might not think is on the up. That's just a part of life, and that's. Tolerance, you know what I mean. That is allowing society to continue despite the fact that everything isn't exactly the way you like it. And, sure. and, uh, and people get them conflated way too often. Absolutely, and people definitely think tolerance has to do with everything, you know, being fixed, quote unquote, and agreed upon. Yeah. So, if you, unless you have more to add, I think we're going to move on from that I, subject. That's probably the yeah. most incendiary thing we have to say. And I think we handled it decently. I, I mean, we named a couple names, but uh, yeah, I it's. Think- 
you know, it, it is what it is. It's and again, I don't. Uh, you know, this is all a discussion. This is not. This we're not telling you facts anymore. We're telling you no. our feelings. Uh, some facts as far as you know when certain comics featured certain sure. characters, but as far as like with the content. Please, uh, you know, I would love to have a discussion, even if you were to uh, tweet at us or definitely write, write us an email. Mm-hmm. We, we would love to. We might maybe, if we get enough response, maybe we'll even uh, dedicate an episode to more of this kind of discussion. Sure. It could be interesting. Absolutely. And uh, this is, uh, I think we're, we're about to the end here, and we're going to we're gonna discuss something that we've been batting back and forth for the better part of a month now. Yeah. Um, with a censorship in the 20th century, it's it's an odd marriage of Bible Belt values and liberal politics, which you would never think would be on those. They wouldn't be a, a no. team. Yeah, you, know? you don't you don't find them. You don't you don't think of them as hanging out together. No, no, and uh, but both of them, you know, they both they they both share a commonality in that they want control. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, we're gonna look at a couple of those things here. We have the Hayes Code, which is uh, this, this which is like the prehistoric MPAA, the, the Motion Picture Association Code. Yeah. And uh, that was put in by a, a fellow by the name of Will, Hay- Will Hayes, who was the former Postmaster General, who was a chairman for the Republican Party and a Presbyterian deacon. Uh, he was hired, and this is the popular theory, he was hired as a PR ploy to help clean up the image of Hollywood founding, following the rape and murder of an actress by the name of Virginia Rapp uh, that uh, Fatty Arbuckle was uh, accused of, of doing. Yeah. An amazing story. We don't. We're not going to go into it now, but yeah, it's worth looking up. It's it's full of intrigue, folks. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, the music industry. We we mentioned last week. Uh, Tipagor was behind. Uh, Tipagor and the PMRC, which is the Parents Music Resource Center, they were behind uh, the deal to get the parental advisory stickers. Uh, with some stores not selling albums with stickers to minors, yeah, which was you know the overall goal of it is to keep them out of the hands and ears. Of uh, the youngsters, and now that that's Tipper Gore, the wife of Senator Al Gore, Senator and one time Future. vice president yep. and presidential hopeful, maybe one of the most liberal people. And Tipper herself, I remember saying at that time, saying, "You know, I love rock and roll. I just don't think blah blah blah." This, <laughs> this what I'm saying is, this isn't like a stoic, you know, yeah, somebody that says it should only be religious rock. This is somebody that probably loved Led Zeppelin, but thought that Ozzy Osbourne was a bridge too far. Yeah, and this is uh, this is from the year of it takes a village. So absolutely, and uh, we also can move on to the video games, the ESRB, which, as we mentioned last week, was a well with Joe Lieberman, Hillary Clinton, uh, a fellow by the name of Herb Cole, who was a representative from Wisconsin, a Democrat. Mm-hmm. Um, all Democrats. Also, yeah, all Democrats. Um, and uh, internet regulation. Uh, we have Net Natty. No, I'm sorry, Net Nanny. And setting age restrictions on browsers and in computer preferences, these ratings serve to guide primarily for automatic censoring of content. So, you know, you don't want your kid to see a certain thing or go to a certain site, it's blocked. Yeah, and, and it even goes, I mean, it sort of nullifies almost everything else because now, you know, people get their music, they get their vid- movies, they get their video games from the internet. Sure, everything. So NetNanny is sort of a, an all-encompassing censoring Thing that that'll keep you know your parents or whoever can mm-hmm. can uh, limit different things. They they can kind of make a sliding. You know, yeah. it's okay to do these kind of movies, but not these kind of games and whatever yeah, else. Especially with the ubiquitous nature of like tablets now among children. It's, yeah. uh, it's you know it's it's 
I suppose useful. It's a, it's an, it's ap, it's apolitical. It's not uh, one or the other. Yeah. And it, it's the you know the same old American anti-sex crusade song and dance. Usually. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and you know, uh, I mean, what do adults do when they want to figure out a toy, uh, an electronic toy? They give it to the kid to figure out anyway, so they know <laughs> their way around it. Yeah. Somebody's. If you look on the internet, you know, the kids are not having trouble getting their Call of Duty game. So don't yes. worry. Don't cry too much for them, <laughs> folks. <yeah. laughs> and uh, you know, of course, we'll close where we started. Uh, comic books. Estes uh, Scafava, Democrat from Tennessee, and Dr. Frederick Wortham, a social crusader. Um, and, and not to not to say this is all liberal politics, we have, uh, you know, panic number one, the banning of that in Massachusetts, which kind of kick-started a lot of this. Yeah. That was banned by a bunch of uh, Puritan zealots. Basically, you know, a bunch of religious types that felt that Christmas was being impugned by that... Uh, yeah. One uh, Bill Elder story. So, and the good name of Santa Claus was drug through the mud. It's, uh, but it's 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 interesting as we talked about this whole month. You know, people would normally consider these kind of restrictions to be a conservative, yeah, um, Bible Bible thumping type yeah. of uh, reaction. And I think a lot of that comes out of maybe Edwin Meese, who started the Moral Majority in the eighties. He yeah. was a Republican, and it kind of like that's what kind of brought. You know the religious right over to the Republican Party and kind of made seven hundred club exactly. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, all those guys, all the all the uh, the preachers, the evangelists, were all became you know big Republican supporters. So it's sort of, I think, in modern times, conflated that party with that kind of restriction. And uh, yep. believe me, again, we this is not an endorsement or a of, and, yeah, of no. either party, <laughs> not at all. We're just I'm just speaking. Don't get it twisted. I'm just speaking historically. <laughs> But you know, but when we look at the history of the 20th century, it has come a lot, a lot of time from concerned moms and the liberal uh, side of politics. So, you know, it's just a different way of looking at what what is censorship. You know, I, I, I think that really is the uh, the the final question is like when is something censorship and when is something, you know, a socially minded uh, cause cause or something. Yeah. You know, yesterday even on the even on our friend the internet. Um, I forget what it was. Somebody wrote an article that I didn't agree with, and I, I wrote as much uh, as a Facebook comment. And someone else wrote, um, you know, he's he's entitled to do that because he has free speech. And I'm, and I didn't I because I'm not that stupid. I didn't continue with this person. <laughs> but you know what? What I would what I would say is, I'm not curtailing anyone's speech. I, I no. you know, and 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 saying what's on your mind. That is the use of free speech, it, and and that law exists to stop the government from yeah. stopping your right to talk. You know, as as we've shown, you know, the entertainment industry can limit their own free speech all they like. You know what I mean? Sure. If they don't want to say certain things, they can make that decision. Uh, so, you know, doing our own censorship, it it almost seems like we're shooting ourselves in the foot. You know what I mean? We have all these rights that are not. Uh, enjoyed by everyone around the world, and we'd rather shorten them. You know what I mean? We'd rather limit them rather than explore them uh, to their fullest. So that's Reggie's soapbox. Uh, do well, you have... I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on the spot here. Is right. there a happy medium? Um, because I don't know. <laughs> I'll I, come right out. And I say don't it. know. I, you know, I'll tell you. I'd say if this was a Reggie run world. It would all be out there. It would all sure. be. It would all be available. And I'm not saying we'd be pushing, you know, straight up hardcore pornography to. Se- wouldn't we? Wouldn't push anything to anybody. But it would all be there. Okay. Uh, you know, parents would have would have to play a larger role in what they thought their children should see, because obviously, we don't expect a child younger than you know 11 
or mm. legally 18 to have the agency to make those kind of good decisions, you know what I mean? Certainly. So they would have to get involved, but it would all be out there because I feel like that's the sum total of what we have as a culture and a society, you mm -hmm. know, uh, to, to excise any of it. It almost makes me want to go back to talking about the, you know, uh, pre-civil rights racism and how I find it quaint. But it's because it's a historical, almost an anomaly. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And, and it just and it shows yep. how what was acceptable 50 years ago is abhorrent now. You know, and that's you know, in 50 years from now, we don't know what is going to be abhorrent then either. Sure. So it's uh, that's the kind of thing that interests me. You know what I mean? It's all living and breathing. Yeah. Exactly. And and you know, by restricting things. We sort of limit the amount of breathing it can do. Absolutely. But uh, I think we have stirred the pot as much as we want to this time. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you have any any more to no, add. I, I really I I want to emphasize that we are not endorsing anybody no. or anything. This is not. This, this is, is a show without political agendas. As a no, matter of fact, no. uh, without getting into it, but Chris and I have talked privately about it, and our politics are not precisely lined up. Nope. But that's okay. We can still enjoy and talk about comics and talk about things. And that's sure. what we'd love for you, our listening audience, to do is talk to us about what you think about the comics code and all the things we've talked about in this episode and in our previous four episodes. Uh, if you want to write to us and, and, and say any of that, you can write to us at weirdsciencedccomics at gmail.com. Probably address us directly since Jim reads those. Um, but, you know... We will, he sends them to us, so we will see them. And, uh, you know, if we get a lot of response and, you know, a good discussion going, that may be cause for a whole new episode. Sure. If, if you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find me at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. And uh, both of us contribute regularly, uh, you know, definitely every other day, practically, <laughs> to WeirdScienceDCComics.com. We do reviews, articles. Uh, you can hear me, uh, actually both of us on the podcast every week because we do Cosmic Treadmill, so... If you hang around that site, you're sure to get more Chris and Reggie than you could shake a stick at. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, <laughs> I want everyone to go to Chris's personal blog. Chris is on infiniteearth.blogspot.com, where he reviews a DC comic every day of the week. Uh, just recently, I, I, this wasn't a brand new review, but you reviewed the first issue of Volume Two of Suicide Squad. Uh, yep. Was that that was you didn't do that today though right that was like that was yesterday yeah. I, I just sometimes my you know my Twitter feed is it goes by at a blinding pace I miss Christmas <laughs> this is true but it was great it was it was awesome and you know the movie's out and if you wanted to know uh, a little bit more about the movie the comic actually won't help you that much but a little bit no but it's it's still <laughs> worth reading it's still cool um, I really recommend you go check that out uh, beyond that though anything else Chris you got anything else for the people I think that's it. Well, we really appreciate everyone listening. This is the end of our first quote-unquote arc yes. of weird comics history. And, are, we re uh, are we restarting at number one next we're gonna, week? <laughs> we're going to reboot to get all the new <laughs> listeners next week. It's a whole new history. you know. We're going to change everything, get a lot more violent. Yes, uh, weird, co weird comics history rebirth. But you know, I, I just want to say Chris and I both have been very happy with the uh, number of listeners and the kind of response that we've been getting. We really appreciate it. We are out there looking all the time, almost uh, compulsively. <laughs> and uh, we really, really appreciate people that if, if you're enjoying it and interacting with us. Uh, we're having a blast doing it, and we're make, really making a podcast that we would want to listen to. 
so we hope you feel the same way so until next week make sure you keep it weird historically and keep us in your crime suspense stories yo celebrate the new life new ways to make money new ways to break dummies forge they name and take money computers ain't that smart whatever man built could be taken apart anything new can get old like dudes started rocking platinum some stopped wearing gold solar energized rides no steering wheel tell it how to drive no propellers in the sky airplanes like many rockets waiting lists for the rich to get tickets to visit mars while the poor people starve computers taking over their jobs a man's forced to live off land now it's back to the caveman era when we made fire by two sticks rubbing together the truth is many are too scared of new data america online cut off see you later yo welcome to the new world new beginning a new way to play a new way of living cash is the past